Thank you for listening to the BJJ Brick Podcast. We'll be bringing you Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and good times. We hope to flatten your Jiu-Jitsu learning curve, help you get the most out of your grappling ability, and meet your goals both on and off the mat. Welcome back, my friends, to the BJJ Brick Podcast. This week, episode 247, we're bringing you a special guest, Jonathan Thomas. Jonathan's been on the show a couple times, so definitely don't miss the interview part because you're going to learn a lot. As usual, I'm here with my buddies, Joe and Byron. How are you guys doing today? I'm doing good, Gary. What's going on? You know, I got a couple texts last week after the show, and uh, people want to hear you uh, beatbox, Joe. Uh, can you give them a little special treat? <laughs> Uh, we'll save that for another time. How about that, Gary? There you go. <laughs> <laughs> we'll save it. Perfect. How you doing, Byron? I'm doing well. Um, I'm excited Good. to bring this interview uh, to you. It's it, it, Jonathan always does a great job uh, of explaining what he's thinking about Shisu, and he goes out and he gets re- he does research from other things and brings them in, and and I think that's a big thing for Jiu-Jitsu because there's not millions and millions of dollars and and all these scientists helping us figure out jujitsu but there's a lot of sports that have that and so if you look at those and then try to translate that into jujitsu you get you get a lot of benefits and and jonathan's i think he's at the cutting edge of uh jujitsu and in living a way that helps you uh compete or perform at at an amazing rate and he's he's got a goal win worlds uh, not on steroids, drug-free, and uh, I think he's got a good shot at doing it, and uh, it's exciting to see this happen. So really excited to bring you Jonathan Thomas uh, during the interview. Well, guys, we have this BJJ Brick event coming up uh, June 23, 24, and 22. <laughs> to put this out of order. Uh, yeah, backwards. Yeah, I don't know. You know, sometimes <laughs> I just say Byron, numbers though, randomly. Are we going to do the event in order? Yeah, like we'll the do 22nd it. Twenty second first. Yeah, twenty third, then twenty fourth. If you're capable of of you know changing time around, you could do it any any day you like. But uh, we'll be producing it in order live uh, if you're in attendance. And that's kind of what I was talk- was thinking about for our off the mat lesson was we're hoping to do a recording of an episode in front of a few of the audience members that that are in town or that are at the event will say, Hey guys, we're going to record tonight. And we want to come by and, and, and watch and participate in this. That'd be really cool, but it's different. And to be honest, it's super easy to record and make this podcast over Skype because that's what we do. And, uh, definitely comfortable with that to have the equipment for this. And, and it's, it's a pretty simple process now that we have it down. Uh, it takes a little, you know, a little learning curve, obviously, but it's different to have probably three different microphones, one for each of us, rolling and have it in a probably a bigger room. There's sound problems with the larger room, and there's technical issues. It's definitely pushing outside of the typical comfort zone that that we exist in in this podcast. This will be an interesting experiment that we would that, that we're hoping to do uh, that weekend of the event. And I just think that anytime that you you push like that. It will develop your skills. So I think it will help develop our podcasting skills. I think, in reality, we're not just doing this on Skype. We're not even using the uh, the video 
capabilities of Skype. Like, I cannot see Gary and I cannot see Joe. I can't see if Gary's like rolling his eyes or if he's getting ready to fall asleep or if Joe's probably having a sandwich. <laughs> yeah, probably maybe better. But but once we're all together live, uh, maybe the interactions will be so much easier because you, you can get that uh, body language and read that. And either way, uh, whether that's a great episode or it's it's one that kind of falls and is is a is one that's plagued with technical difficulties and it's the sound quality is suffering. I think we'll all learn a lot, and I think you can look at somebody who you know does a tournament, and it's going to be different. It's outside your comfort zone, regardless of how it goes. You'll learn quite a bit. Well, you know what I really respect is all the work you've been putting into it, Byron. I know you were telling Joe and I about how much you've been doing and preparing for it. And, uh, you know, that's just admirable. You know, just like a tournament, you're preparing for it. And one thing I really liked is what you said you're doing to get ready. And and this is a great idea. Um, You know, what Byron just explained is we're all in different places doing this over Skype. We can't see each other. And Byron's talking about doing this in front of a live audience. So what he's doing is he's in his special recording studio and he has lined up all the stuffed animals. Yeah. And he's having them watch Byron while he's doing it. He lined them up like they're seat, seat, seated and watching. A couple of them have drinks, he said. Some of them have popcorn. And he pops <laughs> that popcorn and gets some drinks beforehand. And, and that's really smart, Byron. I, I respect that. And I, I love the extra work you're putting in. Yeah, I knew collecting literally thousands of these stuffed animals would someday pay off. I just want to know why some of them don't have any stuffing in them anymore. <laughs> That's a puppet, Gary. Uh, that, was a great, that was a great life lesson, Byron. Uh, I'd like to point something else out, though. Um, you talk about this uh, podcasting and recording the way that we're doing it, like it's easy and it's a piece of cake. But I'm coming to the game late. You know, I just started a few months ago with you guys and, and got some equipment that you sent me. And um, I find it still to be pretty daunting. And... Um, you know, it's a challenge and, and learning. And and so it just goes to show you do something long enough. And no matter how difficult it was in the beginning, after a while, it becomes uh, fairly easy. And if you relate that to jujitsu, you know, once you've sort of maybe you mastered a particular guard or a particular range of jujitsu and, and then you move on to the next and, and you're like, I'll never get this. I'm, I'm never going to be comfortable playing this game. Well, you can refer back to the fact that you already met challenges and difficult things became easy, and the next thing you're working on uh, will fall in line, and it will also become easy given enough time and enough work. I like that, Joe, and it also makes me think about, you know, you say as time everything becomes a little bit easier, and you're relating that to jujitsu. I also think about, you know, how many weeks have we had audio issues, like everything's so easy, but I can't even turn on my computer, is <laughs> what we ran into last week, and and that makes me think, uh you know, about life and also about the match. Uh, you know, we may have been doing jujitsu for a long time and all of a sudden, uh, Joe comes up to visit and he's got a different style of game than I'm used to. I get on the mats and, you know, I think I'm pretty good, but Joe does different stuff. Basically, it's just like my computer not starting, uh, my Skype needing to be downloaded again, uh, a bug in the system. And, uh, you know, I have to, uh, figure out, you know, I have to use my brain to figure Dang out, it. you know, what Joe's doing different. Joe might even give you a virus. <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've been known to give people crabs before. <laughs> uh, oh, that's an old insight, Joe. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, that's 
That'll so be catch, but what he, we he, need to do now <laughs> is find all of Joe's older friends that have been around a long time and uh, let them listen to this podcast, and they'll probably get it. <laughs> yeah, speaking of getting it, another thing you need to get is Byron's uh, audio book, your first year in BJJ. And basically, first year is probably your toughest year. And our goal here at the BJJ Brick Podcast is to grow jujitsu, to get more and more people training. And if you get past that first year, there's a better chance you're going to keep doing it down the road and uh, become uh, old fogies like us three. Um, so definitely check it out. It's two and a half hours of content. It's Byron walking you through stuff you're going to expect in your first year. You know, everything from the benefits of jujitsu, which I think are awesome. Everybody just talks about, you know, learning, how, learning some self-defense and learning how to take care of yourself and submit people. But, you know, how many people have we known that have lowered their blood pressure, have lost weight, have become more flexible, have become stronger and have more self-confidence, have met made more friends, you know, which is a huge thing right there to, uh, picking the right school, which is very important for keeping, keeping going, what moves to work on, whether or not to enter a tournament and how to prepare for a tournament. So definitely check it out. We have a link to it in the show notes, only $11.99. And I know Joe mentions this all the time. Even if you've been training it for a long time, uh, first of all, you can still get some use for it. But secondly, you could, it's a great gift for your training partners. It'll help your training partners, which in turn will make your room better. Uh, make your practice room better and make you better as, as everybody uh, gets up to par. So definitely check it out. Great reviews and kudos to Byron for producing such a quality product. Gary, th- thinking about all the benefits that you mentioned, a big one, health. Think about how much better your health is because you do jiu-jitsu. Is that the best part about jiu-jitsu, you think? You know, for me, not necessarily. I, I'm really big into the camaraderie, the social aspect, the self-confidence has given me, um, you know, in life. It, it has made me more self-confident. It has made me a, a happier person. But I also think when I'm happy, my health is better. I, I guess it could go back to health. I think if I'm happy, my blood pressure is probably lower. Um, you know, there's going to be less stress. As, as we all know, stress leads to, you know, sickness, disease. So, uh, yeah, um, you know, I, I guess they do go hand in hand. So it's maybe not the best, best thing, but you wouldn't have to say, uh, I love that about jujitsu, right? Oh, definitely. You, you got that right, Joe. Hello, my friends. This is Byron coming at you from the editing room. I want to jump in here and just share a few things that's happening right now. Gary is highly suspicious of a prank we've been pulling on him for several episodes. If you're new to the show, that's great. Uh, it started on episode 243 where Joe and I conspired before the show started and that we would get him to say something is the best part or something is great about jujitsu. And we just send him these easy setups and watch him see if he'll take it or not. We got him again, episode 244, 245, and this is episode 247. He's getting suspicious. <laughs> and uh, so I just wanted to jump in here and say that this this is kind of unraveling on us here as he's getting suspicion. We'll see if we get him next week. And then it might all fall apart from there. But uh, let's give it another week and see how we do. And those of you who have been following along at home, it's been fun to throw these out there and see if he takes them. He's so positive about jujitsu, and he's often times will say something is the greatest thing. But uh, sometimes that changes. And this prank hasn't gone perfectly according to plan, but that's how pranks go sometimes. But he's definitely taken the bait a couple of times. And here he is as he kind of reflects on what's happening to him 
and questions the reality that's around him. So I'll go ahead and cut back into the show, and Gary's a little suspicious, to say the least. Less stress. As, as we all know, stress leads to you know sickness, disease. So, uh, yeah, um, you know, I, I guess they do go hand in hand. So it's maybe not the best, best thing, but you wouldn't have to say, uh, I love that about jiu-jitsu, right? Oh, definitely. You, you got that right, Joe. I have a feeling you guys just threw me down a path. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about, Gary. Uh, uh, we do okay. have a quote. Of, <laughs> what, happens, me, bro. what happens a lot on this show is, Bart, I, I'm the guy who gets picked on on this show. I, I'm, you know, I got a couple bullies I hang out with, and they pick on me and send me down a path and make fun of me. And uh, I have a feeling you guys got some rolling. I can't wait to see what it is, though. So, you know, I appreciate it. Okay. Uh, yeah. Right. Gary's, uh, Gary's always not- cautious. <laughs> Try not to get, let your paranoid delusions run away with you, Gary. Around you two guys, I have to be. We have a quote this week from Bill Newman. Who we, we were talking about this. We don't know who Bill Newman is, but we have some theories. I was saying I think he is Paul Newman's illegitimate little brother. And I was and, saying I think he's the factory manager at the salad, <laughs> where they make the salad. I, yeah, so, I mean, first of all, he's got a good job. And he has a rich brother. So um, he's probably got some good quotes. Basically. <laughs> I like your logic, Carrie. <laughs> so, Byron, what did Bill say? Bill said controlling your time helps overcome frustration and brings life into balance and order, giving you the feeling of control and poise. And you could think about this timing on the mats or your off the mat time that allows you the the freedom and the time to get to the mats. And originally I was thinking about that timing off the mats and and if you if you can't control your schedule enough to train, I can see that being very frustrating. Uh, but if you pencil in, you know, the calendar, here's my training days, boom boom boom, and then schedule stuff around that that will help you get on the mats those days and, and, and help things from, from blocking those out. If something's important, put on the calendar and it, you'll, you'll go do it when that day comes up. Well, you know, what makes me think about, we're talking about time, uh, controlling your time. We are now on episode 247. We have had an episode every Monday. Very few weeks have we not, uh, recorded, you know, sometimes we'll record two in a week to get two people to be able to get that on schedule is tough. Then we add in, you know, another person, Joe. So now we've got three people that we have to figure out that works time for all of us. We've all got busy lives. Uh, Joe's got a crazy schedule, works 14 on, 14 off. Byron's 24 on, uh, 48 off. I work, you know, a regular schedule, but, you know, kids and family stuff going on, and, and they have the same thing going on. And we find time to record. And that's the crazy thing is between the three of us, and, and we record on weekends, which is probably a busy time too, we we always find time to do it. And my number priority is my family on the weekends. My number two is try to find time for jiu-jitsu. This is my third priority probably on the weekend, and, and I still we still make it that's the crazy part and i know you guys are in the same boat it's not your number one priority byron it may be but uh definitely not me but uh it's just it's kind of cool how we've uh, we've made this through 247 episodes and uh 
And I think the only one, I think I was not in one of them. And since Joe's been here, he's been in every one and Byron's been in every one. So that's kind of crazy. You know, Gary, I think it comes down to uh, if it's important to you, you'll find time, you'll find a way to make it happen. You are so true there, Joe. That's a great point. You know, it's it's important to me. Part of it's luck. I mean, if so, Joe had hurricane come in and, and cause a big mess in his house. If that happened to me, we would have missed some weeks. Or you two, <laughs> I mean, there's no way. I mean, what's what's the most important thing? You know, having uh, your house in order or, you know, releasing a podcast every week. Um, the other option is if one of us can't make it, the other two are still good to go. And I could definitely see in the future Gary and Joe recording or yeah. or something like that. And that's perfectly fine. That'd be, that's cool. Yeah. It's going to happen. Pretty, yeah. Gary, pretty soon you and I are going to be doing all the work. Yeah. I, I just see how, you know, Byron's the boss. He's just uh, delegating. Yep. Gary's going to do all the editing. <laughs> that means we'll never have a show. <laughs> you know, I'll edit you guys out and it'll just be me. <laughs> there you no, go. But it will happen one of these days, Byron, but it's crazy. 247 episodes that we've done it and then adding in joe joe you've been around do you have any clue how many episodes oh i don't yeah uh, it's but it's, it's been, been a, a while yeah. yeah and it's just crazy that we have always found time it's uh you know we send out emails and text each other back and forth when can we make it and we all somehow agree to a time it's crazy it- it's always one of us, if not two of us, seem to come sliding in at the last minute. Half the time, I'm <laughs> I'm just walking in the door five minutes before we're supposed to go yeah. on. Yeah, yeah, you five minutes, me a minute. So, uh, <laughs> uh, you can tell I'm the slacker of the group. Yeah, but we make it work. We have our system, and and uh, and about the you know looking at the podcast side, typically, you know, we do record on a Saturday or a Sunday, and on a Friday, we're we're texting, hey, what day works for you guys? And if somebody's got some strict limitations and the other two guys, hey, can this work? And some, you know, it's been pretty fortunate so far. But I think we're more robust having three because it's pretty darn lonely doing it with just one. Man, that oh, came you out are weird. Definitely, <laughs> yeah, you are definitely robust, Byron. <laughs> but, you know, two people could record this show just fine. It's not that uh, tricky. It, I think it is more fun, definitely, with with three, and and I think that we're getting good feedback from the audience that the, that the three amigos here are doing a good job. Uh, but if by some chance one week comes up and and one of us can't make it, the other two will progress on and and uh, be happy when the third comes back the next week. <laughs> there you go. Yep. Hey guys, I'm kind of busy now, so I'm going to get out of here. All right. We'll see you, man. Yeah. Bye. Yep, we'll be. <laughs> Hey, uh, heads up here. This is an awesome interview. Uh, Jonathan is uh, really going to give you a ton of advice about training, learning techniques, getting stronger, improving your mobility, and a few other things. Uh, If you're at work and blasting it over the loudspeakers, which typically people have headphones on, or if you're in the car and you got some young children, uh, a little bit of language is uh, a little adult, uh, nothing extraordinary. Uh, We don't always give a warning, but I, I wrote it down like... So heads up if there are small children. It's nothing crazy. He's not. He doesn't go off on a rant. He just casually, uh, you know, so drops a few f bombs, I guess. And so that's a heads up. But uh, yeah, I I really enjoyed this interview with Jonathan. He is the most interesting grappler in the world. He has never gotten a paper cut. 
He blocks it on a microscopic level. Rather than telling an opponent how poor their BJJ skills are, he simply buys them a BJJ audiobook to help them out. He once put a chokehold on a honey badger and got a pint of honey. It was a sweet move. I don't always listen to podcasts, but when I do, I prefer the BJJ Brick podcast. Stay sweaty, my friends. All right, my friends, I'm happy to bring Jonathan Thomas back to the BJJ Brick podcast. Jonathan, it's been a couple of years, but uh, you're definitely a fan favorite. You are very well-spoken about jujitsu and very you know, good at explaining your ideas and, and concepts about jujitsu, and that is something we always value on a podcast. Uh, Jonathan, welcome back to the show. Oh, thanks a lot for having me back. It's, uh, I really love the platform. It's a great opportunity to exchange ideas. Uh, you know, I feel like doing like videos or like things like that are really fun. But I feel like there's a lot of uh, jujitsu to be kind of uh, learned or discussed in like in-depth concept stuff like this. So it's a great time to really, you know, share ideas and kind of uh, go back and forth with someone. So I'm happy to be here. All right. We're, yeah, we're excited to have you. Uh, bring us up to speed. Where are you? And in, in just tell us a little bit about your personal jujitsu history. Okay. Uh, so you mean like where I started training and just kind of like a short synopsis of my history? Yeah, that'd be good. And, and just where you're at now. And how <laughs> All I, that yeah. too. Okay. Yeah, just... Okay, so fast, fast version. Uh, I started training in St. Louis, Missouri under Rodrigo Vaghi. Uh, I trained there for maybe four years, four to five years, um, up until Purple Belt. I had uh, some pretty good competition success while I was there. I won the Pan Americans at Blue Belt. Uh, then I moved to Atlanta and trained more or less for five to six years uh, full time. Uh, I trained, uh, between, uh, Corbinia, Jacare, Lucas Lepri. I trained with them a bit. Uh, I also had a brief stint where I was working in Washington, DC, and then I was able to train with Ryan Hall at his gym 5050 as well. Uh, so I bounced around all those three locations for more or less the first 12 to 13 years of my career. Um, and, uh, I, I learned a lot, obviously from all, all my instructors. I also feel like I had a large amount of like kind of self-study development in my game, which is a huge factor. Um, and then at some point, uh, when I was in Atlanta, I was traveling, teaching seminars and I got a job offer to open up a gym in Gothenburg, Sweden. And, uh, I just felt like with the level of the guys here and the opportunity, I felt like it was a perfect situation for me to kind of both like be able to make a living doing jujitsu, but also because I have slightly different training habits and philosophies than a lot of people, I felt like I would really perform well being in a situation where I could kind of uh, kind of have a perfect test tube for my style of training to develop stuff. So I decided to move here. I moved here like, like three years ago, um, and I've been and I love it. Uh, Sweden's like really nice, really nice people, beautiful city, just uh, really shitty weather. So. <laughs> I remember last time uh, you were on here talking a little bit about the social differences in in Sweden, and uh, you you get to kind of have fun with that and and play yeah, a little bit sure. when they see you. Was that when I had visited or had I moved here already? I, you know, and it was, I think it was 2015. So I don't remember. I think, I don't remember. <laughs> but you said something about like, they don't typically, uh, you know, talk to strangers, but you being just, they view you as an yeah, American, American, you just strike conversations it, yeah. and they kind of just humor you and, and you have fun with that. That's kind of fun. Oh, for sure. I can do, I can be like, uh, I can, I can do something that's socially awkward. But th- because they uh, are so culturally accepting here, they'll just be like, oh, he's American. It's okay. <laughs> so they, they kind of just 
they forgive you for anything because they assume that's your culture, even if it's uh, even if you actually did something stupid. They're just like, oh, it's American. <laughs> it's okay. It's like you're given special privileges. That's awesome. I I really enjoy uh, kind of having a good time with people I don't know and and getting them to yeah, laugh or getting too. them to laugh at me. So yeah, that's <laughs> that sounds like a, a fun place to be. It's really enjoyable and a beautiful, especially in the summer. Yeah. <laughs> summer yeah in, in the winter it's like it gets dark really early it's like nighttime around 3 or 4 p.m uh so you know there's not much to do but train and and the swedes drink a lot on the weekend um and uh in the summer though it's like daylight until 11 p.m at night it's a beautiful city there's stuff going on so summer is definitely the time to be here if you're going to wow. visit that, that sounds amazing uh jonathan tell me a little bit about your uh style of play if, if you're going to compete uh, what do you prefer that's happening on the mat? Um, you just mean like my particular uh, styles that I use, like what passes, what guards. And yeah, like yeah, yeah. It, it, some of your favorite techniques are kind of highlight uh, maybe okay, a okay. system you like to use. Sure, yeah. So um, I have a pretty diverse open guard game. I would say coming up from white belt to brown belt, I was kind of well known for my spider guard uh, and maybe my close guard a bit. Uh, for just having a high submissions from my guard. Like, so a lot of like triangles, omofladas, arm bars, some open guard, spider and close guard. Um, I kind of came to a point where in my brown belt career where I had won the worlds, uh, in 2011, or I split the division with uh, my teammate, Michelle Lange, uh, in 2011. And then the year after in 2012 is kind of when everyone really started doing this double guard pull stuff a lot. Um, and then working for the Bolos from there. So I kind of made a pivotal uh, choice in my career because it kind of felt uh, you, you only have so much you can invest your time in as like a, a full-time competitor. You want to pick what's the most worth it. And I kind of decided I didn't want to get into this double guard pull thing because uh, I ultimately I wanted to be good at passing. And I just felt like anytime someone pulls guard on me, I would rather just go on top and try to pass. And if I can't pass them, then I just need to be better at guard passing, right? Like I don't, but I feel like some of the guys made the option of, well, they know they can't pass the guy, so it's better to, to do the double guard pull and then learn to, you know, avoid having to play in their guard altogether. But then the problem is if everyone is doing that, you start to have these matches that turn into like stalemates on your butt. Uh, you know, which there's guys who obviously are amazing at that game, like the Meows and Espen and stuff like that. Uh, and I just kind of decided that for me, I really preferred to go into the passing. So from 2011 on, I feel like I became much more, uh, focused on guard passing. Uh, and I feel like my iconic kind of, or not iconic, but maybe my more preferred passing style is, uh, the Toriando sequences and knee cut sequences are like my real favorite. Of course, I mix a lot of other ones in, but those are definitely my favorite, like Toriandos and knee cuts. I like how you answered the question. You didn't just... Uh, tell me your favorite passes. You kind of took us through the development of of what yeah, got you sure. there, and I think that and we why, yeah. we all experience that. Um, and and a new person may not realize that you're doing these techniques because there's there's history behind that with you personally. For sure, yeah. Um, last time you were talking a lot about off the mat training and what you're doing. Um, and we had a really cool conversation. I, I do encourage people to go back in and check out those older interviews. But, uh, yeah, you seem to be kind of on the cutting edge of uh, the ideas and the science behind uh, training on and off the mat. Tell us a little bit about what you do when you're not on the mat but you're still training. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so maybe a good way to start with that, uh, just I think to give people the right principle of where this comes from, 
uh, is like ideally, like if you're trying to defeat someone in the sport, you're trying to be, you know to beat your opponents when you compete. Uh, all things being equal, some people are naturally talented and stuff, but just all things being equal, like assume everyone's got the same natural talent level. You're trying to outwork your opponent. You're trying to get more time working on your craft than they are. Uh, so if you're trying to get good at, say, chess, which there's no physical aspect, you know, if you wanted to practice chess for 10 hours a day, you could do that, right? You can, you can sit there like on your couch and play online now and, and you can play chess for as much as you want. You, if you want to sleep less, you can play it all night long and try. And if your opponent is only practicing chess one hour a day, you know, over time, you're going to start beating them out because you have more time. The difficulty with jujitsu is that if your only format of training is just hard sparring, you kind of come to a point where you can't do that for six hours a day. Your body's going to fall apart. Uh, you're either you're on performance enhancers and you can handle that level of workload. Uh, you're like super naturally gifted and just have a, a physique that can handle that. I'm more of like a tall, lanky person. Uh, and now I'm, you know, I'm 31, so I'm a little bit older. Uh, it, you know, and like I find that my body get in, is, it can be injured relatively easily. So I'm always trying to find ways to increase my work time on my, on my skill and, uh, while limiting the physical impact because, you know, it's like running, right? You could do like a one hour slow pace run and you can get an hour of running in. Uh, and then actually at the end of the run kind of feel even refreshed because you did like a nice slow aerobic pace. Uh, but you, at the same time, if I, if I had you run for 10 minutes and we had you run like sprints intervals as hard as we can in 10 minutes, we can make you so wiped out that you, you don't want to do anything the rest of the day. Right. So it, it's about scaling intensities. Uh, and so my, my goal is always to try to prioritize skill development, which is your, your actual pattern recognition ability to do moves in sparring. Like when you're sparring, can you execute those moves at the right time? So what I like to try to focus on is a combination of film study, like watching competition footage and specific training. And if I need to, I'll even like kind of scale down the intensity a bit of the specific training. So I'm focused more on developing the timing and the skill rather than overloading the, um, the physical intensity and the time to overload the physical intensity for like cardio and endurance. Uh, that's more closer to a tournament. So then like two or three weeks out from a major tournament, I try to go really hard and push to peak the, uh, endurance. But like, you know, if I'm six months out and I'm trying to work on developing my, developing my game, my focus is more strength, uh, and, uh, technique development. Uh, it reminds me uh, um, of, of a Conor McGregor saying something about upgrading your software without damaging your hardware. You've got to take care of your body. Yes, yeah, and I have heard that quote as well. Actually, I think when I was, I think it was on the Ultimate Fighter. He said it, and I, I really resonate with that. It's super important. Yeah, um, and and so f- find ways to do that, especially uh, you know as as we're getting older, as as you're getting going home and being sore and having a hard time recovering. Uh, You've, you've got to be able to still find ways to get good at jujitsu and not get beat up in the process. Too bad. Right, for sure. <laughs> uh, I think maybe I can uh, take the wheel here just for a second. Yeah, I think absolutely. Something, maybe, maybe one of the most important things, if someone's not going to listen to this entire podcast, I think just a good way to understand uh, maybe my philosophy on jujitsu is I kind of break everything down into like there's five factors that des- decide your performance. Or, and performance is how well you do in sparring because we don't learn jujitsu to be able to demonstrate techniques. We learn to be able to perform well when we spar. I always tell my students, if you can't do the move in sparring, you can't do the move, right? We're try- That's our end goal is per- performance in sparring. So the five factors to me that define performance 
are your technique, which is like, which is actually a mental thing. It's like your, your brain's ability to tell you to do the right move at the right time during resistance. All right. So that's technique strength, which is like your maximal strength. Like how much can you push? How much can you pull? You know, there's different ways to measure that. Right. Uh, but basically your strength, uh, your technique, your mobility, which is how flexible are you and which ranges of motion. Uh, so strength and mobility define everything that your body can do basically. Like, you know, if you're extremely strong, you, you know, you can grab the guy's collar and pull yourself off the floor with one hand. Uh, you know, if you're extremely weak and you can't even hang from a pull-up bar because your grip is so weak, then spider guard won't even work because you don't have the prerequisites to play the position, right? It's like running a, a computer program. It may be a good program, but if the hardware isn't strong enough to run it, then it won't work. You need the right hardware to run the software. Um, so strength, mobility, technique, uh, endurance, which is something that you focus a little bit more uh, closer to tournament, in my opinion. Uh, but I think generally you get that from a regular rolling or speed drills. We can kind of go down like how to train each of those intelligently. How do you train your strength intelligently? How to train your endurance intelligently? How to train your technique intelligently? Uh, your mobility intelligently? And then the last one is your mindset. And the reason I make that last is I think it's maybe the least important. I know that's going to uh, maybe trigger some people because a lot of people are really into the sports psychology stuff. And I think it's, I think it is true. Like it definitely matters. Uh, but I do, I do think that people sometimes focus on it too much where they think that the reason that they are losing is because of some sort of mental thing. But all, most of the time it, it's your technique. And the story I always tell people, uh, is just like my first tournament. I always remember very vividly because I had the worst confidence, right? I went, I knew I was going to lose the tournament. I knew it. And I was like, okay, I just don't want to get submitted my first match. That's it. That's my only goal. Cause I know I'm going to get killed. Right. And I submitted everyone in the tournament, right? <laughs> then I was like, it was, it was, I think it was a juvenile division, right? So then I was like, oh, it was only because it was like the juvenile division. So then my instructor, Rodrigo, told me, you can't do the kids division anymore. You need to, you need to step up and do the adult. So then I stepped up and started doing the adult division. I was like, it was a fluke that I beat all the other guys. Now the adults are going to kill me. I went into the tournament. This guy who beats me in the gym all the time, he lost to this guy. And then I was like, okay, it's the final. I'm going to get murdered. Like I, I, I know I'm going to get killed. And then I, I won everything. Right. And then I was like, man, maybe I'm good at this. I did another tournament, a bigger tournament. And I was like, okay, now it's, now I'm in trouble because these guys are really good. Right. I won again. And at some point my confidence came because I kept winning. Right. And sometimes uh, like, I think what happens is guys get in a way because they think that there's something they need to be thinking to have confidence that's going to make them win, they actually stress themselves out more. If you just accept that, Hey, you can be really nervous and be really scared that's okay. You can still win while being really scared. It actually kind of short circuits that anxiety because you're like, it's okay to be nervous. It's no problem. I can have negative thoughts and still win the tournament. And that always helps me. So whenever I start having like really negative thoughts and things like that, I just kind of let it go and go, well, it's okay. You know, it hasn't affected me before. And then I just, I just go fight and do what I can. And, uh, so, you know, there's definitely things with sports psychology, but I think people's primary focus should really be their technique, number one, and then their strength, mobility, and endurance. So I think those are the things that we should focus on the most, maybe. That, that's really a pretty amazing story as far as, as, as going in expecting to lose. Hey, I just don't want to get submitted. I mean, just that willingness to compete with that uh, parameter, like, yeah, I'm probably going to lose, but I'm, I'm going to try this, and, and hopefully I don't get murdered yeah, out there. Yeah, for sure. That, that's really a, an interesting step you took 
as a young person there, uh, and and then proceeded to kind of go through the the ranks that way, and and step up and up uh, with that kind of uh, I don't know that that idea that yeah I'll prob- this is probably the, this furthest step I could take, and now I'm going to get knocked back back down. Uh, but people do struggle with that. Uh, that confidence, and I think when mm-hmm. it is affecting you, and like you're losing sleep over it, or you're you know you're not able to get into your game because you're so nervous about their game, uh, that might be kind of the other side of that coin. Um, if yeah, you're up all so night, what I would what I would say with that is like I, I think it's definitely possible to, I guess yeah, I need to be more clear about this, right? It's like. I don't think if you're, let's say on a scale of one to 10, like you can break your jujitsu down into just a number and like you're a six. I don't think you can think yourself from a six into an eight, yeah. right? But you can certainly think yourself from a six into a two, right? Um, and I think, I guess, uh, uh, without going too in depth on the, the, the psycho, the psychological part is that I think what happens is by people thinking that they need to master this thinking thing, uh, and they, they have to do all these visual, visualization things and all this kind of stuff. They almost, they, it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. So they start thinking there's all the, they think the fact that they're afraid is a problem and that they have to solve it. Right. It's like anxiety. I had anxiety at one point in my life. Uh, I still have it sometimes, but I, I know how to cope with it, uh, better. So what, what happens is like people start telling they start thinking that that fear is a problem. Or, and that they have to do all these things. They over, they stress themselves because they think there's all these things they need to do to be able to get in the right mindset that's going to allow them to win. When I think if they would just accept that, uh, you know, Hey, it's okay to be scared and just, I'm just going to do what I can and that's it. And then, and then just fight like they, cause I, I see some people who get so deep into the mental sports psychology part. They think that like there's this like weird complex system of thoughts and and visualizations and everything that are going to make them go win. Uh, when in reality, I think the main thing is their technique, their strength, their mobility, get all that sharp, and then just roughly just try to manage out the the anxiety and not overthink and not think there's so much you need to think about and and keep that calm. So that's why I said it's important, yeah. and there is factors of it that are important. But sometimes I almost feel like people get more concerned about that than they do the strength and the mobility and the technique because that's really what matters. Yeah. I I think you, you really, with your scale of, you know, can you go from a, a six uh, to a two or a two to whatever, that's a good way to say that. You're, you're not going to just jump up your jiu-jitsu. But uh, on the same thing, if something is totally off, uh, let's say right before a tournament or a big match, uh, you get a text message and your wife is leaving you. Uh, yeah. You're done. Like, yeah, that, that's either you're gonna roll gonna like amazing as match the guy, or you're not even gonna show up and you're just gonna get submitted within 30 seconds. Like, if you're not there at all, it's like the mentally, like you need to be there, like you're saying, but like to worry and stress about being like perfectly mentally there. Like, yeah, that technique is so important as far as uh, which one to add uh, development to, and mobility and and uh, endurance, all those strength, all those things are are big factors that I think, yeah, you make you make a good point. Um, so you mentioned a little bit about anxiety. You don't uh, want to have that be too big of a factor. And and mm-hmm. <laughs> you just say, <laughs> I hate to, uh, like, you know, the mental side isn't the biggest part of it. But how how would you help somebody? Let's say, you know, you look at a student of yours and like, man, this guy is freaking out. <laughs> He's not going to do well. He's in that mode of, of you've got to at least show up mentally um, 
you know, to yeah, do yeah, well? How sure. would you help somebody cope so, with their anxiety? So, uh, yeah. So what I always tell my students is, uh, and, and this is the same thing for me is, uh, and I like this quote from Bobby Fisher, who's a bit of a crazy person, but also kind of an interesting character, um, is like, uh, he, he, he said the, the line, this is going back to, to the original point. He's like, he doesn't believe in like, cause they asked him like, what is What does he think about using psychology to be his opponent? He said, he doesn't believe in psychology. He believes in good moves. Okay. And actually this helps me the most with psychology is if you focus on your technique enough, everything else drops away. Right. So when I go fight an opponent that is like really intimidating, uh, like they, like if, uh, I'm going to fight like Marcio Andre or, or someone that is like known to be like a world class, like killer, right? I, I embed myself so much into the technique that I'm not even looking at a person. Like I, like I'm not fighting a per, I don't fight a person. I fight their technique. So what I mean by that is like, if I know my lasso double sleeve series so well, when I go fight, I'm just thinking, okay, I'm going to pull guard. I'm going to do the grip fight. I'm thinking about the grip fight itself. And then I'm going to get my lasso position. And then I'm going to get to my double sleeve position. And then from there, I'm almost excited to see what they do. Cause I'm, I'm so confident in my series from there that like either a, it's going to work and that's awesome. Or B it's not going to work. And if it doesn't work, I'm almost excited to see what they're going to do to kill it because I don't even know what it's going to be because I've studied it so much. So either way, I'm happy because I, either I'm going to get feedback on what went wrong with my, my lasso spider system because it feels great, right? Or I'm going to uh, have success and that's awesome too, right? But I find the more you focus on the technique, the more the work, because people, I think they think of things on too broad of a level. So they're thinking like kind of about this entire match rather than thinking about the positions themselves that they're in, right? And this kind of starts to tie into my view on like specific training and stuff, Um and I think that we should probably go that direction a bit because I think it'll because some of these say, uh, the, the questions about the psychological and stuff can be resolved by thinking about how you view your technique in, in itself. Yeah. Um, but I, I, real but, quick, Jonathan, I want to remind everybody uh, I don't, didn't mention it earlier. You have an amazing YouTube channel where it is kind of a it's like the, a great blend of, hey, here's how to do it. Here's the technique. And then explanations about why or kind of a similar conversation to what we're having now is like like the kind of the science behind it and i just i'll put a link in the show notes go check out his youtube channel and you do mention something about um i, I think on, on the example you just gave about like whether he breaks uh, my guard or not i'm excited either way and and that's really the i, I think that's the kind of the putting the meat uh, behind the idea of sometimes i win sometimes i learn like yeah but what did you learn like you have something that you're going to learn if you lose because he some part of right. the, the system was broken and, and so you do like learn from those and that right that is awesome and that's the thing that's the thing that ties in with the specific training jonathan as this interview goes you know i realized i kind of uh started talking about the the one that's kind of the smaller piece of the puzzle of, of the psychology but uh you, you have uh some big ideas as far as uh, dealing with strength, mobility, endurance, and and technique. So, which one of those is the is? It sounds like technique is the biggest piece of that puzzle. And how do you train that? Yeah. So, uh, awesome question. So, um, yeah, like to the last point about the uh, um, the psychological part is like if your strength, mobility, technique, and endurance are all on point, and you do, and that's you just know that's true. Then, and you're still having issues when you compete, then you know the psychological is the part that you need to assess, right? Uh, or, or to solve. 
But if your if your technique is terrible, like if you grab a guy who's never trained before and like his technique is terrible, right? And then his uh, and he's also weak and not very mobile and stuff. And then we put him in a tournament and he keeps losing. Trying to solve the psychological part doesn't really make a lot of sense at that point, right? Because everything else is off. So that's why I'm saying like I don't think like the psychological is not important. It's just that we want to make sure that the other stuff is on point, and then the then we can patch up the the psychological, right? Yeah. Um. So with that, yeah, let's let's go ahead and jump into like the technique. Yeah. So, um, so I think the two most important things that that we need to prioritize here is that we're talking about the main four now, which are strength, mobility, endurance, and uh, uh, technique. Right. I think technique and strength are the ones that need to be kind of the driving factor in organizing your training in the long term. Um, the reasons being mobility, you can kind of work on all the time. Whether I'm training jujitsu hard. I'm doing strength, whatever. I can always kind of work on my mobility, and it's super important. Probably one of the most neglected parts of people's games. Um, and then uh, strength and technique kind of have this balance because uh, what we're trying to do, like when I made the chess analogy before, is we're trying to develop our technique. Um, but if it, how we train our technique uh, matters because if we're just doing hard rounds all the time, you can exhaust yourself to a point that it's hard to build strength. Right. So there's this kind of like at a higher level, if you're trying to build strength and your technique at the same time, sometimes I'm trying to scale the intensity of the jiu-jitsu I'm doing down a bit to try to focus on technique development while also prioritizing strength gains. Because you can't go hard as hell at jiu-jitsu all the time and build strength. So there's like a counterbalance with the two. Um, but right now, just to make it easier, I just want to focus on how do you develop technique? How do you get your technique good at jiu-jitsu? I think that's the easiest thing for us to focus on right now. So the biggest mistake I see people make is that they're just doing regular jiu-jitsu rounds all the time hard, right? I, I, the, all a jiu-jitsu matches is this uh, combination of multiple little mini positions, right? So, for example, we start in the closed guard. Uh, I, I win if I open your guard, and you win if you sweep or submit me, right? That's like its own game. You can make a sport out of that, right? If I like, That's its own skill set. So someone can be good at opening the closed guard, but then be terrible at escaping mount. There's literally n- almost nothing in common about those skill sets, right? Yeah. And the problem is that people often, like if someone does a private with me, they roll with me and they're like, like, what, what do you see? What's wrong? And what they're looking for are these like macro level things like, like, oh, your hips are kind of here and that's going to solve all the problems in their game. But really, the, all the problems in their game are just a collection of multiple mistakes and multiple mini positions. Right. There's like there's nothing in common about how you pass the worm guard and how you open the close guard. Really. Right. I mean, other than like don't get submitted and, and things <laughs> like that. Right. It's like you like so it's much easier to develop your jujitsu when you're specific. So if you and we're if we're trying to develop, you need to be uh, thinking about your rounds after you roll to get feedback. So if we do a regular match and you roll and then you keep getting swept in spider guard and daily Hiva. Your takeaway may be, man, I suck at passing Spider and I suck at passing Daily Hiva. If we do a specific round and we go, okay, you're starting in closed guard and you're trying to open the closed guard and you keep failing, your takeaway may be, man, I keep getting caught in this armbar and every time I try to stand, he hooks my leg, right? So then you, you see how your focus of what went wrong becomes more specific. We can go even deeper and say, okay, you're going to start in closed guard and then he's going to start with your arm trapped maybe, right? And then it starts to become like, okay, when I try to put my hand to pull my arm out here, he grabs here, and you start to become even more specific, right? So what we want to do, for me, as a general rule, I really like maybe 80% of my training to be specific, 
and then 20% regular rounds. And the regular rounds are useful as feedback on how my game is doing. So maybe I do a regular round and then I see that, okay, you know, when I get to spider guard, I can't hold the guy. Then I go to doing specific training starting in spider guard and then I can correct what's going wrong in the spider guard. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the ratio is also interesting. You being the one who's kind of running the class there, is that what you guys typically do is start in the position yes. at work instead of just yep. technique and then roll? Bingo. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I usually try to do a, like if we do six, eight minute rounds, four are specific and two are regular rounds. Uh, now given, uh, like, um, your specific rounds can be different, can be extremely intense as well. That's often one thing people will say is like, ah, oh, but you need to go intense. The specific training rounds often are even more intense than yeah. regular rounds. They can, they can be, it depends on how hard you want to go. Yeah, but specific sparring, mat escapes or back escapes. That's that's hard work. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And it and it also the other thing too is because of the fact that when you do specific training, you can really limit the ego because you don't care as much, right? You're you're kind of it doesn't count because it's specific training. So like you're willing to try more things, which is what you need to do to learn. You need to try new things and then make mistakes and learn from that. But when you're in a regular round, sometimes you're kind of caught up in this like, I don't want to lose to this person. I'm trying to prove something. We all say we don't have an ego, but we all do on some level have an ego. Um, and so by, by opening that, by doing the specific training, you'll try things you wouldn't normally try. And then you'll get submitted sometimes or swept in ways, but then you're also learning. And because it's the specific training, you don't take it as seriously. So sometimes we push much harder in the context of a specific round than you do the other way. And it becomes more fun. It's, it's more akin to like playing a video game for me. I'm genuinely enjoying the training. It's not just like a rough war. It's like, I, it's hard, but I'm enjoying it. Um, and I'm solving stuff. It looks like you, uh, yeah, learn the techniques and then get in those positions and work on the techniques. Right. And, and what I would say is like with, uh, t- with the techniques is that often the way people are taught is like they learn a random technique. So maybe one day they learn a spider guard sweep. The next day they learn something from worm guard. Then they learn a random pass. The, the way to get good is, is, um, you have to have positional awareness, right? So techniques come out of positions, right? You don't just, if you don't know how to hold spider guard, if someone shows you a random spider guard sweep, it's practically useless because you can't even hold spider guard, right? So the first thing you need to do is pick a position you want to work for a week or two. Um, and then this also, uh, you know, it depends because most people are obviously are not controlling their own training. They're going to a gym, right? So generally what I tell people is if you're in the gym and you guys just do regular training, you can't tell your instructor to change the training to the way that I'm suggesting because you just can't do that. Uh, so, so generally what I tell people is you need to find a friend at the gym and start setting up your own separate time to work on stuff on the side, right? That's how you do it. Uh, so what I would recommend is pick a position you want to work for a week or two, like maybe opening closed guards, an easy example, you know, okay, you're going to work on opening the closed guard. And let's say you've never been in the closed guard before, you know, we'll put you in the closed guard and go, even before you don't know the technique, that's another question is where do you learn new technique? Does it come from your instructor? Does it come from, uh, DVDs? Does it come from watching competition footage? Where are you getting your new technique ideas? Uh, and then, you know, you start in the position, you just start sparring, trying to open the closed guard. And even if you just get killed the whole time, you're still learning. You're starting to, you're learning like, oh man, I keep getting caught in the arm bar this way. I keep getting caught in the triangle this way. And you start recognizing problems. Then when someone at a later date shows you something in closed guard, you're actually more aware of like kind of what's relevant in the situation. 
right? So you need to be doing, ideally, it should be like sparring closed guard for a few rounds and then stop, kind of, you know, talk with your partner about what's going wrong. You know, what do you keep getting caught in after class? Take notes on what went wrong and then try to come up with solutions for those problems and then go back into closed guard again. And you try something and then stop, adapt, consider things, study, try again. And you keep cycling that process. And I promise you, if you spend, you know, if you did one full month on opening closed guard, all your training was was starting in closed guard. By the end of that month, you're going to be so much more knowledgeable. When you're in a regular match and someone goes to closed guard, it's the same thing as the specific training you were just doing, right? It's just that it, it happened in a regular match. But so ideally, if you isolate all these positions and you specific train, getting out of the lasso, you specific train, getting out of 50, 50, you specific train sweeping from X guard. You can make all these little mini games and study positions around at the same time. Then you start to notice that all a match is, is just a collection of multiple mini games. Yeah. You mentioned, I think one of the big hurdles here is uh, most people aren't in charge of their own classroom and they don't get it to yeah. say they could do this. Um, one way you can kind of cheat this system and it makes it less of a mini game and more of just a small game like uh you know i want to work on you know my guard passing so um if i pass the guard i let them recover and then i i I do that again yeah for sure and and they don't really they might not even notice you're doing this uh or you know oh thanks for letting me get my guard back and and to kind of get that into so that's just guard but you could even try to pick out okay who's good at daily healing guard and and then pick that person you know they're going to play that guard and then that kind of helps you guide your training in a more yeah, so specific that's a way. very good point which is and we could even get into like a suge- like maybe we could come up with an idea for like uh you know how we can uh give people advice on how to, to schedule their own training i think that'd be like a very good thing for us to talk about yeah like how would a, re- a regular person training at a, just a, a random gym that you know that they don't control the training how should they go about scheduling their own training i think that's a, a good idea for us to talk about but to the point you just made which is really good is like absolutely if you just have a class where you guys go in, you do like multiple regular rounds, you know, you can choose how you want to use those rounds, what your intent is with each round, right? Like if you wanted to push your cardio, how you roll is different than if you're trying to develop a position, right? Like maybe you're just moving all the time rather than resting where maybe you should, right? Uh, you know, or if you're in close guard, it's hard to push your cardio really when you're on bottom. You're actually being more tactical moving, right? But if you want to push your cardio, you're going to open your guard, move the whole time. So you can kind of choose to use your training time in different manners depending on what you need. Do you need to work on your cardio or do you need to work on developing your spider guard, right? So you and so when you're training in the gym, you can choose how you want to use your your mat time. And let's say you want to develop your passing. Sure, you could go on top and pass the guy, let him out, and then go try to do it again. And you could use that's kind of like you're embedding your own specific training within the match. Now the only thing with that is you can only uh, you you could only decide precisely what you want to do if you're higher level than the guy. Yeah. If you're, fight, if you're a, a blue belt and the guy you're fighting is a brown belt, well, you can't really go, oh, I'm going to work my passive because he's dictating the match. So what I would tell people if they're trying to go about doing it that way, which is a, a very valid system if you don't have the, si- the time on the side, is try to pick what you want to work with different people because you know your current training partners. So maybe if you're fighting like a brown belt who's really skilled, you're like, okay, well, you know, he gets me in side control all the time. So maybe I, I want to work on my side control escape with him, right? And then there, then you know one match might be with a guy who's lower level than you. You go, oh, on that guy, I'm going to try to work my triangle choke finishes because I can get him there pretty easy, right? You know, And then you can kind of decide what you want to work on with each person individually. But if you decided to say, go, oh, I want to work on my, uh, my spider guard, and the guy's a brown belt and he passes you in the first second, 
and then you're in side control the rest of the match, then even though you wanted to work your spider guard, it's not very relevant because you're not there. Yeah, that, that, and, and you don't even have the choice of, I want to work, you could say, man escapes with his brown belt because I know, you know, he's going to yeah, be a exactly. dumb, but he may not go mount. He might stay inside and yeah, exactly. just throw that whole thing into the into the scrap pile. You can't work on man escapes because that was his choice on that one as well. So, yeah, picking the person and then, and so it's okay to alternate different uh, specific, specific training because, especially in that situation, you may have a choice not to, and you do have to develop an entire game anyway. Yeah, exactly. So that's a little bit about developing technique, and I really like that, getting that. Uh, you said we're not trying to learn techniques to show techniques. We're trying to learn techniques to perform them and do them while we're rolling or competing or whatever. Correct. That's a big difference. So right. you think about people who, yeah, I know a lot of techniques, but yeah, you can't be able to use them. And, that, and being able to to cheat the system and, and say, start here, let's practice here. And that way, when you're there, where you're actually rolling, you're going to perform the same way. And, and that practice is, is really a great method to just jumpstart any sort of position exactly. or technique. For sure. And, and again, I really, the best is if you can really choose the spots you're going to specific train in, I think is really the best. Uh, but of course, if you can't, then that's a valid alternative. Um, but I think the best thing you can do if you're at a gym where you, they don't do that in the regular class is to find a friend at the gym that you can work with on the side and set separate time to get to class early, say after class or come in on an open mat and, and really set your own personal schedule for doing this. Cause if you, if you want to get like extraordinary results, you have to do extraordinary work. You, you have to do things on the side and think and study and stuff. Yeah, that's yeah. Perfect. Perfectly said. And, and, and that's a person that, you want to select wisely for a couple of reasons. You want them to be, uh, you know, vested in your learning, and you're going to be vested in their learning. Uh, schedules that match up, <laughs> personalities yeah, exactly. that don't Bingo. conflict. <laughs> There's a lot to choose yep. to, to take into, but uh, th- that could have a huge effect on both of your games uh, down the road if you can find someone like that who will train like this with you. Oh, I mean, tremendous difference. Yeah, and you don't need um, a ton of. Uh, mats or you know if you're doing this and throwing the mats down at your house or apartment yeah, or whatever. I used to do it on the carpet all the time at my friend's house yeah that that way it, yeah there's probably a few things you wouldn't do on the carpet but hey we're working in these parameters I could I could do this all day yeah, long you can really carpet, isolate no positions pretty easily for sure yeah you know closed guards like for example is one that's like relatively easy to do like in a small situation um what was I gonna say you, you, yeah sorry uh, Another aspect of the specific training that's incredibly important if you're like a competitor is that you have to realize that uh, there's so many variations in styles in jiu-jitsu that often uh, most gyms kind of have a culture of styles that are at their gym. So there may not there may be things that you're going to encounter in the tournament that literally no one in your uh, your gym even plays, right? So like Worm Guard's a very good example. Is like a small gym plays the worm then you may be gym going hard as hell. Like you're just the hardest pushing person in the world. You're so tough. You don't, you, you'll push through pain. You don't care. You're, you're a murderer, right? But like no one in your gym plays worm guard. Well, it doesn't matter because then you go compete and you're this super tough dude, you know, who can push through anything. And then the guy puts you in worm guard and he holds you there the whole match and you can't get out. It's like you're tied in a knot. You know, you have to, in those cases, if you know you're going to fight someone who does a specific thing, you need to study what they're doing and then have a training partner try to emulate it and learn to play it at least a little bit so that you have some semblance of an idea 
when you go fight against it. Yeah, that and that, that's what having a like a, I guess a little bit of a larger gym is is great for because you have that bigger pool of people to pull from. Yeah, for sure. But if you if you don't, you, you know, you grab a buddy and you say work this, you know, lock it in, and, and I'm going to try to bust through your worm guard. Although their worm guard won't be that great, but at least you'll get some exposure to it, I guess. Yeah. And another big thing with a specific training too is it kind of like I hear a lot of people make this statement. They're like, I feel like my game is in a plateau. It's a very common statement I hear. And the thing is, like, when you do specific training, you realize, like, you don't, like, I never have plateaus, yeah. right? Because what, what does that mean? If someone says, like, their jiu-jitsu is not going well right now or their kind of game's in a plateau, it's like, what does that mean? It's like, okay, so you got your guard pass. How did you get your guard pass? Well, what position were you in when they passed you? Were you in a spider guard? Were you in a closed guard? Were you in daily Hiva? Where did it come from? If you break everything down into positions, you start to really see jujitsu that way. You see, okay, there was no grips. I lost the grip height. He passed me before I even established a guard. Okay, well, then you need to have better recomposing and you need to have better grip fighting, right? Uh, and then like, okay, you got the spider guard, but then you couldn't hold it. He got out and passed. Okay, well, you need to work on your starting in spider guard and controlling better uh, because you need to figure out how he got out of it because he shouldn't be able to just get out of it easily and figure out how he got out of it and how you can counter it. And then you, you know, you got passed afterwards. So then work on your recomposing and be able to get back to your spider guard, right? So you can, you can kind of like isolate every problem that's happening down to whatever the specific problem that caused it was. If you were in your closed guard and the guy passed your guard, well, multiple mistakes were made. One, he opened your closed guard. You lost that battle there, right? You couldn't submit or sweep before he opened the guard. So you could go deeper on that, you know, and then once he opened it, then you couldn't establish an open guard position like a spider or a De La Hiva or a setup guard. You didn't establish anything and then he passed you, right? And, then it's, and when you start viewing jujitsu ju- ju- this way, it becomes very easy to diagnose what went wrong in every match. Yeah, that, so that kind of answers the question of uh, somebody like, well, what do I work on? Uh, yeah, I want a specific spar. I want to, want to train this, yeah. this way. But I don't know if picking uh, actually, a certain technique. A, a deep, to a deeper point about what you just said about when someone asks the question, what should I be working on right now? This is a really good point is uh that's a very common thing people are like what is my game right what like what is i'm trying to figure out what my game is going to be right and everyone's always trying to figure out what are they going to be are they going to be a spider guard guy are they going to be a daily heva guy what, what is their game going to look like and they're trying to have all like figure this all out and what i always tell my students is don't even worry about that at all like right now like there's plenty of time to learn a lot of positions and what you should do is, is first especially if you want to be a good passer learn to play everything right? Learn to play spider guard just for the sake of learning to play spider guard. L- like just understand how it functions and do it to the best of your ability. Then learn to play daily Hiva guard. Then learn to do the Baron Bolo. Then learn to do the setup guard. Then learn to do reverse daily Hiva guard. You can learn to play the worm guard just because you learn it. doesn't mean that you forget the other stuff you learn, right? Like you can learn to play all these positions and have a better knowledge level of what the whole thing is about. Once you know how to play a lot of positions, then you can, from a position of knowledge, choose, hey, I think the De La Hiva felt best for me. And I know how to play everything else, and I just genuinely feel this fits me best. But a lot of people will never even try the other position. And as soon as they try it, it's hard, because it's always hard when you start a new position. right? They, they're just like, oh, it's not for me. It's, it doesn't, doesn't feel right. It's like, yeah, it's new. It doesn't feel right. It could feel right if you gave it a week or two, but you, you can't quit imme- immediately at it. So learn to play all the positions you can. You know, I mean, unless it's a position that like, say you're super unflexible, then maybe a position where you invert on your neck is a bad choice. Uh, but 
but like all the positions within the, the, the capabilities of you physically, you should learn to play uh, just for the sake of learning them. Then you're going to have a more well-rounded knowledge of the game. And also when you're passing the guards, you'll understand what the guard is, how it functions, and then it makes it easier to understand how to kill it. Right. So I think a lot of people should just focus on more developing their positional awareness in general uh, rather than worrying about how to build their game. And if you make that as your goal, you always have something new to work on. If you're already good at a lot of things, you go, oh, well, let me work on escaping the 50-50. You're good at that. Let me look, work on escaping the omoplata. Right. You, you can go deeper on anything. Yeah. And, and you're always going to find uh, teammates that will be able to push you, hopefully. So there's a few there's different ways to to gain this knowledge and and obviously your coach and your teammates are are big sources but uh one of the questions my one of my patreon supporters wanted to know Michael um how do you feel about learning from like instructional DVDs versus uh, looking at competition footage you kind of talked a little bit about competition awesome. footage but um compare those a little bit as far as um if you're trying to learn these techniques to to work on which one do you prefer or maybe the strengths and and weaknesses of each Right. Awesome question. Um, so basically what we just covered is like, how do you go about training? Right. So, or how, yeah, how do you go about sparring and developing the, te- uh, learning the technique? And that's by doing specific training. But what's going to happen when you're going to specific train is it's going to be difficult and you're going to keep failing. So then what you need is you identify a problem. Then you need to start developing your technique and knowledge in the position. So just sparring there, you're going to learn some from just being there and intuitively moving and stuff. But then you're gonna have you're gonna have to learn technique, right? And that's gonna come from multiple sources, right? One is like your own create creativity playing around, but generally in the beginning you want to learn from people who know, right? So uh, one is from your instructor, right? Uh, another one is from like your teammates. Maybe you have like a higher level teammate or someone who can give you some advice in the position. Uh, but even then, you may be training at a smaller gym and like your instructor doesn't have knowledge on a certain position. Like I feel really knowledgeable in a lot of spots, but there's spots that I don't know that well. And I would reference to one of my blue belt students for advice on a question because I know they play that position more than me, right? Um, so referencing others is a good way to do it. Uh, th- then the main one for me is always competition footage. Uh, now, I know a lot of people struggle with competition footage, and I'll get to the DVD question in a second. Um, but I know a lot of people struggle watching competition footage because like, I don't understand what's happening. I don't see things. But when you start specific training, then you'll start to see it, right? So like, again, using closed guard is the easiest analogy. If you watch um, a match, you may not understand what position they're in. It just looks like crazy gibberish because you don't know all the open guard controls. But once they get in closed guard, most of us can recognize they're in closed guard now, right? So what I generally do is if I was studying how to like open the closed guard, for example, I'll skim through a match and look for the moment when they're in closed guard if it's a guy I know is good at passing. And then he gets in closed guard and then I'll pay attention. Okay, what happens here? Right. And I'll see what grips the guy on bottoms trying in close guard. I'll see what grips the guy on top does and see how he opens it. If you're doing a lot of specific training in the close guard at the time that you're also watching film, like, you know, you do an hour of specific training opening the close guard. And then later in the day, you watch an hour of a competition footage of people in close guard. You're going to start getting ideas. You're going to, oh man, I didn't see he grabbed the lapel like that. That's interesting. I've never done that. Let me try that next session. Right. And then you go, oh man, I keep getting caught in this arm bar. And then you see the guys there. The guy tries the armbar and he defends it a certain way. Let me try that next time. And you'll just start watching competition footage uh, and look for the moments in the competition footage matches where people are in the positions that you are in working right now. Then you'll start to find really quickly that you get a lot of ideas and food for thought on things that you can try in the sparring. And that will just make your progression skyrocket. 
Uh, you'll pick up things you didn't, you weren't even looking for. Just like little small things will come out of nowhere. Um, and often it is like little small things, like just hold the sleeve this way, not this way. Those kind of things make a huge difference. Um, so that's uh, probably one of the most important ways. And the reason I really like that way is you know it works because it's competition footage. If someone's using something against a world class black belt and it works, then you know it's like it's got some credence. It's been tested against a lot of other people, right? Um, DVDs can be really good too. Uh, the only issue with a DVD is you have to trust the person who's making the uh, the instructional, right? Is that people who make instructionals a uh, they're not always like some people are great competitors, but they're not always good at articulating what they actually do. Now, maybe that's because they're intentionally withholding information because they don't want people to know their secret techniques. Maybe that's because they just, they just honestly don't know. And I could say that for myself. Sometimes I'll show a technique and then like I've been teaching it for a year and then a student will point out like, man, you're kind of doing this with your knee. I'm like, man, I didn't even notice I was doing that. And it's like a missing piece of the puzzle. Right. Um, so sometimes you don't always get everything with instructionals. But, you know, some guys are much better at instructionals than others. So if you find someone that you really think their stuff works well for you, like, like Ryan Hall's a really good, uh, I think, base example of someone who I, I personally think does good instructionals. He shows the stuff he does and he really tries to articulate appropriately. Obviously, I think the, the same of myself. I think I show what I actually do. But there's, I don't want any name names, but there's certainly people who put instructionals out there that like the stuff they're showing just does not work. It's not appropriately what they're doing. And the problem is if you're trying to take the instruction and you just have faith and believe that this thing works, you can end up wasting countless hours trying to do a move that doesn't even work, right? And you just – and you get so frustrated. You're like, it won't work. It's like because it doesn't work, right? So that's why sometimes competition footage, you know if it worked in the competition, you know it's like legit, right? So – but instructionals can definitely work. You just have to trust the source. Yeah, and and there is a difference between somebody who is – uh, I guess leaving out things uh, on purpose versus accident, and and you you say a, a yeah, big statement. Sure. With, somebody could be great at jiu-jitsu and not great at teaching it, especially in that Absolutely. video format. That's tough. Yeah, it is very tough. And that's sure. yeah. Uh, what I mentioned, uh, yeah, your YouTube channel is great. It's I don't know if it's just obviously it's not just me, but the way you're explaining things on there uh, really resonates with me, and and it makes it a lot easier to learn. And I do feel like. Uh, your intention is to help the people watching the video 100. percent You're, um, you're, no, for, you're yeah. giving it your all. I really which is, appreciate it. Yeah. Well, great. Um, I, th- I think that's something that that just comes through in, in the way you make those videos. Awesome. I really appreciate it. So to touch briefly on the other ideas, you know, the big, um, the big things: technique, strength, mobility, endurance. Um, yeah. That we haven't really. So strength. Tell me a little bit about the strength training you do and, and how maybe we could look at the stuff we're doing and, and change it. Perfect. Uh, yeah. So I really think we, yeah, I think this is a great format we're doing now. Like, I think we really covered the technique pretty well, like, like acquisition of knowledge, which is like competition footage, asking your instructor DVDs, uh, how to implement it, positional sparring to learn and develop. Right. So then now with technique, the defining thing of what techniques you can physically do is your strength and your mobility, right? Like, so for example, um, and we'll kind of cover strength and mobility at the same time. Uh, like, you know, maybe like, um, like standing passing obviously works. A lot of people do it, but hypothetically an extreme example, suppose you don't have the strength to stand. Well then standing passing doesn't work, right? That's a basic strength requirement. Um, if you're playing spider guard, right? Uh, 
you know, there's a certain base requirement to hold the sleeves. And notice that that's not strength, like versus strength, because it's uh, there's a limit, right? It's like your own body weight. If someone deadlifts and you're hanging off of them in the air, it doesn't matter how strong they are. The the limit is your body weight hold, that you're holding. Does that make sense? So it's it is in a way it is technique, right? Because it's not like if they were stronger, they could hold you more, right? It's like you're the old, they're holding you up. It's your holding yourself. If you don't have the strength to hold the sleeves and you don't have the grip strength, then you fall off. But if you have, if you're really strong, it's easy, right? So, uh, strength and then your mobility, the range of motions and positions you can be in. Can you be stacked? Can you lasso? How wide can your legs go? Those will define on how easily you get out of positions and what kind of guards you can play. Like Baron Bolo is very difficult for people if they can, if they can't touch their toes and they can't come up on their neck at all. Right. So you kind of need to work on those as well because those will define what, uh, capabilities you have. Um, so maybe we'll talk about strength first, right? Uh, one of the most important things and things that I think that people underlook with strength is that people always think strength are like, you know, but you don't need to be strong, right? But it's not about strength per se. It's, it's that, uh, things become a lot easier when you're stronger. So let's say that there's a move you do that requires a pulling force of like 20 pounds, right? Um, if your max pulling force is 25 pounds, then that's, uh, 80% of your pulling force, right? Yeah. And that's a lot, right? So you're going to get tired if you do that a lot. If you increase your maximum strength of pulling to 50, then that's not, uh, then, uh, 25 pounds pulling force is only, uh, 50% of the, of the, of what you can do, right? So it's significantly less proportion. The uh, analogy I would use is like most people, if I tell them to do pushups from your knees, they can do tons of pushups from their knees, but, but they've never worked it really. Why is that? They can do it because they're strong enough to do regular push-ups. And it's the same thing. Like if you, if you want to do high repetition pull-ups, do weighted pull-ups or one-arm pull-up progressions. You will get super strong or super high numbers on regular pull-ups. I can do probably 25 to 30 strict dead hang pull-ups, right? But I never do high repetition pull-ups. I just do weighted pull-ups, right? And that will define your high repetition. When you, you want to peak your endurance, then you do high repetition closer to a tournament. But you peak endurance like for periods of time closer to a tournament. Strength is something that you build on for years, right? So you like there's actually an official strength standard chart for like powerlifting. Uh, you know, and and I'm not suggesting only powerlifting. I like gymnastics a lot. So I think people should do a combination of like Olympic lifts, powerlifting, and uh, gymnastic motions. But basically you should be able to like I like to be able to have measurable progress in every aspect of what I do. So you should be able to look at yourself and be like, okay. One year from now, I want to be measurably stronger in these different things, right? Like, so one year from now, like if I can do a weighted pull up with 50 pounds now, then one year from now, I want to be able to do 80 pounds or 100 pounds or, you know, two years from now, 150 pounds, right? If you can do that, then when you go back and try to do a 50 pound weighted pull up, it's going to feel like air, right? <laughs> and you're in that, and that's what makes you relatively stronger, right? On the mat. So, uh, you know, then that goes into, um, what is the appropriate way to build strength, right? Uh, and generally it is, uh, high resistance. So I, if it's, if it's weights, it's like high weight, lower repetition, like five by five, things like that. Or, uh, if you're doing body weight, it's the same thing, but instead of it scaling with weight, you scale the difficulty of the exercise. So you can do pull-ups, then you start doing like, uh, archer pull-ups, which is where you pull with one arm, keep one arm straight. You know, you can do that and you can start doing one arm pull-ups with a resistance band. Uh, you know, you can start doing front levers, like standing ab wheels. There's different things that, uh, that you can scale, but you should always be, uh, 
working on the side of lower repetition with higher difficulty. And as you get stronger, you scale the difficulty up with either by either increasing weight or increasing the difficulty of the motion. You can do push-ups and switch to one-arm push-ups, right? And you can always find a way to make it more difficult, you know, or put weight on your back, you know, or do bench press. Um, so the idea is you want to be able to measure this stuff, right? So if I, if I, you know, take someone's, if I want to measure their strength, I should be able to go, okay, where are you at? So, you know, we can look at like, can you do a standing ab wheel? That's a really good one for your core, right? A lot of people have never tried that. It's unbelievably hard to do a standing ab wheel stand roll, roll out up and down. Um, so, you know, can you do a standing ab wheel? How much can you deadlift in proportion to your body weight? How much can you squat in proportion to your body weight? Uh, how strong is your grip? Like, uh, can you like, uh, hang from a pull up bar with one hand? How much weight can you have on you when you hold with one hand? Uh, how much can you weighted pull up? How much can you bench press? How much can you overhead press? You don't have to do all those exercises. You can pick the ones that matter most to you, but they need to be measurable so that we can see progress, right? If you're just doing a bunch of like kind of, uh, what I would call just circuit wishy-washy stuff, it starts to get too crazy. And then we, we don't, we don't have measurable progress, right? Whatever it is one year, two years from now, you need to be more than where you were two years ago, barring some severe injury. Uh, so that's what I'm always focused on. Right. So, um, mobility, so are, do, do you write these ahead, down? Sorry. Yeah, generally I write them down or I just have a good like memory of where yeah, I'm at currently. Okay. Um, one comment to throw in there, uh, it it is good to have that progression as you, yeah, I want to be able to, to do these pull-ups and do more next year and, and, and that sort of thing. But the, the, the strength, I think that one in particular, um, is a little bit harder to maintain as you get older. Um, yeah, well, I mean, most of the world's strongest men you see are around their forties. Yeah. So if you're in your um, if you're in your fifties and you you're able to do you know ten pull ups with twenty pounds on you this year, being able to maintain that or be, being able to do nine isn't a total failure. No, 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 for sure not. Yeah, I mean, of course, like as you start to get older, like like into fifties and sixties, which I, I I'm not speaking from experience <laughs> at this point, is from what I've heard. But, you know, obviously at some point your your actual physical uh, capabilities are going to start to dwindle, right? But even then. Uh, you know, I guess your job would be more maintaining the loss, right? Like trying to lose less. Uh, but I mean, if you took someone who's 50, who has never strength trained before, right? Even though their physical uh, attributes are declining, if they never took strength training seriously, they can still gain massive amounts of strength from 55 to 60 yeah, because they've never done strength training before. So of course, if you were already a peak athlete and 55, uh, then you would be on a declining, right? But if you were 55 and you never took, you never strength trained ever in your life, you could still be making strength gains 55 to 60, I think. Yeah. The hard part, I think, for people is to survive that decline from peak athlete to uh, not a peak athlete and still uh, maintain a level of enjoyment and satisfaction of what they're doing. Uh, in jujitsu, we can constantly work at getting better at jujitsu, and that's very rewarding. But with some of the physical things, uh, you have to be, uh, you have to kind of, deal with the idea that you're not the same person you were 20 years ago and, right, for sure. and overcome that um, mental hurdle. I, I think, and that also, yeah. And, and this is where it's like, you kind of can't separate, you can't separate your, t- your training schedule. You can't separate like your technique development and your strength and your endurance. They're all entwined a bit. Right. Yeah. Um, so 
what happens is like, I think as people get older, I feel like probably the volume of the, the jujitsu training needs to become a little bit, well, let's say the intensity of the jujitsu training needs to become a little bit less. And I would say the strength training, uh, so the intensity of the jujitsu training needs to become a little bit less and the, the strength training should probably be dialed up more. Okay. Um, and then I think that the technique training needs to be more careful and specific, right? So like, and this, I learned a lot of this because I had a severe back injury where I was out for a year and a half. I had sciatica. I had like 80% loss of strength in my calf. And I was like, I was always frustrated by the fact it's like, look, I want to continue to develop on my craft, even though I'm injured. And the idea that just because I'm injured, it's like, I can't do anything functional to bring me closer to my goal bothered me a lot. Right. So what I found was like, okay, it hurt. Like when I stood up, it felt like there was fire going down my leg. But when I was on my knees, I was okay. So I was like, oh, well, let me just work on passing the, uh, opening the closed guard. Right. And I could, and I, and even if I got tired or I felt kind of unsafe, I could tell my partner, okay, scale the intensity here. We'll do this here. And I would always find a way to be developing my knowledge. Right. Like just recently, like two weeks ago, I, I like fucked my back up again a little bit. Cause like I've kind of had back and forth with that for a while. Um, and, uh, while my back was messed up, I basically couldn't stand. I was super hurt. And I was, I still wanted to progress and I was working on passing the underhook de la Hiva. And I was kind of, I was just working on like how to get my knee out of the position. And I was able to still kind of like not spar, but just start in a position so specific that there's not a lot of movement. So it's not dangerous for me and just see what's the best way to move my foot to get my knee out of the position. And I was able to sit there at the gym for like two hours playing around with that. And the actual physical workload on my body was super low. But it was still all functional time because it was still a problem that needed to be solved, right? So whether that problem was going to take 20 hours or two hours, it needed to be solved. And I did it in such a way that I didn't put any physical demand on my body. I just used my brain in a very smart way to solve a problem that needed to be solved. Had I done it without doing that specific training, it might have taken 50 hours of crazy regular rolling until I accidentally stumbled across the way. But I just did it in a safe way that saved my body the physical damage. So the problem is that people are often in this situation where they are going super hard at jiu-jitsu all the time. But if you're going super hard at jiu-jitsu all the time, it's difficult to progress in your strength. Anyone who has done a lot of serious strength training and mobility training, you'll find if you don't train jiu-jitsu and you just do strength and mobility, your body feels better and better and better every day. Like you feel like you're growing, like, like in the sense that like your body is becoming a stronger, more stable uh, machine, right? And then when you do jiu-jitsu, jiu-jitsu in itself is a destructive act on the body, right? It is, it's asymmetrical. So we do things all the time where we lead with one leg, right? You lead with your right leg, maybe. And then you're always grabbing a certain way. You're always leaning a certain way. So you start to develop imbalances in the body where one leg is stronger. One side is more flexible. And then you're moving sporadically in wild motions, right? That often can be dangerous because you move and tweak your back a certain way. You tweak, tweak your knee a certain way. So jujitsu itself is like a destructive act on the body. And, and so in my opinion, you should really be trying to prioritize your strength and your mobility to be constantly improving and looking for the safest way possible to, to be developing your timing and your precision through specific training so that you have the right patterns and the right movements so that you're always developing your technique, your strength and mobility. And then if you want to peak for a tournament, you should be really strong and mobile and technical. And then you go through a hard three week training camp to really peak for a tournament. And hopefully your strength and everything is enough to kind of keep your body safe to get through that hard training 
so that you peak your endurance for the tournament. Does that make sense? Yeah. That that that, that does. Um, so we're kind of getting the the ideas of of the the strength, mobility, endurance. They're, they're all the physical side of things. There's the yeah. education side of things, which would be the technique, and then the yes. the mental mm-hmm. side is obviously the mindset. So right. they kind of have three different categories. Correct. So to to cover mobility a little bit deeper, what what do you have as far as advice or guidance on mobility training? Okay, so um, yeah, I'm not like a uh, like an expert on the subject, so I don't want to go super deep into uh, you know like because the fitness world's very like a fidgety about you know who says what and everything but I'll, so i'll give you a great book recommendation that has worked amazing for me uh it's stretching and flexibility by kit laughlin uh you can find it on uh if you google it you can find like they i think they have an online pdf uh for download um so it, it's an amazing book uh and they have a very i'm like a very much a scientific minded person on everything so the things that sometimes like with like yoga and stuff like that that can kind of get to me is sometimes like, and I realize there's very practical versions of yoga as well, but sometimes I feel like there's almost like wasted time, right? It's like what I really want is I want my body to function well, like like a machine, right? Like I want it to be strong and I want it to be mobile in the ways it needs to be mobile and dynamically strong, right? And stretching and flexibility of the book, it, it's really like a scientific approach. They're like the jujitsu of stretching, right? They don't care if it's yoga. They don't care if it's Pilates or it's whatever it is. They just have a scientific view of how do you make the body more mobile and safely uh, become able to go into different ranges of motion and be strong through them. And they have a very scientific approach to it. Um, I think they have like a school in Australia, if I remember correctly. Uh, that could be way off. But anyway, get the book. And I feel like they, it's an amazing advice on how to gain flexibility. Uh, real quick, just on, on the importance of flexibility. And it's so commonly underlooked. If we're, if the bottom line is we're trying to increase your performance, which is how you do when you're fighting on the mat. Um, often people are obsessed with technique as am I, it's like my favorite thing. That's why I do do jujitsu. But if I had to tell someone, most people, what is the fastest way to improve your performance on the mat? Hands down. It is mobility. Mobility. I, I really, really believe in two weeks of serious mobility training, you can probably have a 40% improvement in your guard, uh, if not more, right? Uh, if you've been training for a few years already, uh, it may take you a year or two years to have a 40% improvement in your guard game. Uh, if you take your mobility extremely seriously, most people don't. They just stretch a little bit after class. I mean, you take it seriously like a strength training program where you're like really seriously doing it. Um, you can make your guard 40, 50% or more better in like two to three weeks by improving your range of motion. There's so many positions that like, I was just training with a guy visiting today, Ahmad, uh, from Stockholm. Very, very good guys. Like one Abu Dhabi pro before it, like Brown or purple belt, a very good competitor. I was just training with him and he's like super flexible like me. And, and I've worked at it a lot and he's worked at it a lot. And just like, sometimes, you know, roll people like that. Like I pass his guard and get completely to side control. And then like his leg just loops all the way in front and gets him out of the situation. Right. Um, and that's an option that a lot of people don't have. And it's something that is honestly very quickly gainable if you take it really seriously. And just most people don't. So, uh, you know, even, even like tournament day, let's say you didn't stretch at all. And then the tournament day, if you did a very, if, if someone let me do their stretching for them for 40 minutes on a tournament day, if I have you go really deep on these stretches and really push your like splits and leaning forward, 
your butterfly stretch, your stack, your twisting. And I really give someone a good 40 minute stretch session right before they compete. Their, their flexibility level is probably going to go up 30, 40% on that day for competing and make it probably 20, 30% improvement in their performance of their guard on that day alone. I can't stress, I know it seems insane how much I'm pushing this. I can't stress enough how important mobility is. If you look at Taekwondo or something like that, a sport that's been around for a while, it's like, that's baseline what they do for their sport, right? You can't do all those weird, crazy kicks if you're not flexible. And they, that's every Taekwondo studio, they stretch. So that's like, that's every single class because they realize how important it is. And people in jujitsu just don't view it that way. They see if they can't do a technique and they're not flexible enough, they're like, well, I need a different technique. Well, sometimes it's easier to gain the flexibility than it is to develop a technique or technique around the fact you can't touch your toes. You make make a lot of great points. So looking at these things here uh, with the mobility and, and flexibility being a big part of that, where does uh, speed or balance or timing fall? Are they underneath the mobility category or uh, I guess where do, they, where do those fall? Um, speed, time, and balance. Okay, yeah. So, well, there's if we're talking about speed uh, – Speed could be two things, right? Speed could be what is physically measurable, right? So like like maybe a power clean. Like how much can you actually – like how much weight can you take and explode and bring it up into a power clean, right? That is like your measurable explosiveness, right? Yeah. But then speed could also mean like I, – I, I don't think I'm that explosive of a person, but people often tell me I'm extremely fast, right? But that's because my neuro pathways are extremely well-timed to execute moves, Um and that again comes from specific training. If you, you know, start in a position like lasso spider and you specific train the hell out of it, you start to recognize the patterns that lead to what you're going to do extremely fast because you spend hours in the position, right? Then your timing ability, like I'll see things like I see a micro movement in the guy's elbow separating from his knee and it pings my brain, snap the triangle, right? That is not because of a physical attribute. That is because my brain's pattern recognition ability in that position is so fine tuned, uh, for looking at the, the cues to do the movement that it's, it, it comes across as fast. So that's more of a brain pattern recognition thing with timing than it is actually speed. Uh, but of course there's also speed, which I would define as like explosiveness, maybe like how, how much can you do a power clean or like, you know, maybe how fast can your fists move if you were doing boxing or something? I don't know. Um, but I feel like those are two separate things. Okay, yeah, that and that makes sense. Um, how about balance? Where does that fall? In? What categories that kind of fall in? Um, I would put uh, so I would say like I'm a very natural guard player from like day one. It just kind of clicked for me. All right, um, top not so much. I I was the person that like if if the wind blew, I fall over. Okay, um, so with I would say it's actually kind of similar with the balance issue. Is there's two types of things with balance. If you're, if you're specific training all the time, uh, you know, let's say you get knocked over in daily Hiva and the guy's trying to barambolo you. Well, you start to recognize that there's a pattern of how he's knocking you over and then, uh, how you should position your body to avoid that. Right. So then I became so good at defending all these different positions that I have the perceived, um, to someone rolling with me like, man, John's got great balance. I don't, I just know how to position my body in all of those positions. Okay. All right. So, so, but you could take someone who has natural balance and they don't know those positions at all. If they're naturally have good balance, then they may kind of just naturally have a, a good intuition for how to feel. Um, 
So it's akin to like with my guard, I kind of had natural recomposing ability. I see this in some people. Some people day one, I'm like, he recomposes well. Other people have been training for five years and they just, they don't move right. Now the thing is, I always tell people like, just because like, like uh, someone maybe just trains hard all the time and they don't put much thought into what they do and then they got really good. That doesn't mean that that's the right way for you to train. Uh, if someone wants to develop their recom, I, no one taught me recomposing. I didn't even specific train it. I just kind of developed it and it was always there. Right. But I would never tell someone who does not naturally recompose well to just do what I did. They need to actually work on it specifically because they're not naturally talented at it. Right. So with balance, if you don't have natural balance, I still think the best thing to do is just specific train all these positions and you'll kind of learn to position yourself properly so that you're in the best stable position. You'll learn where to put your feet. Right. Someone else, maybe they intuitively knew where to put their foot. Right. But like you're going to have to learn intuitively where to put your foot or learn where to put your foot by studying the position so you can get around it that way. And the last thing about balance, there also is an element of balance, which is uh, your strength. There is strength factors, right? Someone who can deadlift a huge amount for their body weight. So like if you weigh 150 pounds and you can deadlift 400 pounds, I promise you he's going to feel balanced and strong because all of his core stabilizer muscles, all like his obliques and everything is just – really powerful at stabilizing the body. Um, so I feel like those are yeah. uh, one of the major factors. Um, also to me uh, as well, I think that uh, an extremely strong grip, I don't know how much we would go into performance enhancers because it's a huge issue in our sport. <laughs> um, but uh, I feel like to me, two of the biggest signs for performance enhancers in someone is uh, extremely strong grips and extremely uh, good like base. Those two things are big indicators. Uh, and the reason why is like with grip strength, uh, just like most types of strength, um, you either get it from, uh, from either you're naturally gifted with it. And there is people like that. There's people that day one never lifted a weight in their life. Like my friend, Alec Balding that trains with me here. Um, he day one, he could, we took him into the gym to lift weights and he deadlifted like 400 something pounds. He never lifted a weight a day in his life. He's just born that way. Right. There's some people that are like that. They're not a very high percentage, but there's some people that are like that. Um, the other way you get extremely strong grips is you really have to take it seriously and like do like a specific grip training work to develop it, right? Uh, like you do a lot of like specific wrist curls and like hangs and things like that. You need to be doing ma- just like with all strength training, like you'd be doing maximal weight with lower repetition and developing it. Um, the other way is performance enhancers. Um, so Generally, when you're doing jiu-jitsu, if you do high-volume training, just like a lot of rounds bowling a lot and doing something like that, you're building more endurance, but you're not going to build this iron grip that no one can break. When you roll with someone and they have that iron grip that like you grab it with two hands and you fucking rip and it's just – it's not fucking moving, right? There's no way that grip's moving. That's like either they were just really genetically gifted with that or they took something or, or they're really serious. So usually when I meet someone who's just got this like insane iron grip, insane balance and base it, like all of it's insane and then i try to talk to them about like conditioning and they have no knowledge whatsoever about strength training i don't know i just train you know and then they, and then you look at old pictures of them and they used to be like a skinny little person and now they're jacked usually that's a huge red flag for me so <laughs> yeah that uh, that's interesting that you say that uh like you you pick up on that on the mat um read the book uh, the secret race um, it was mm-hmm. written by Daniel Coyle and Tyler Hamilton. He's a, he was an elite, uh, bicyclist on team with Lance Armstrong. And one thing that, that they talked about was 
the other guys on the bike could tell who was on steroids and basically it was almost everybody but you know in a race when when it was like this guy is clearly on steroids because he should be slowing down because of this point in time in the race and he's just coasting sure. right by and so uh the idea that maybe the easier way to see who's likely doing it is the other competitors like this is not natural amount of strength and sure like you like that doesn't convict anybody obviously but uh if some people are naturally strong like you said or they really work hard at it. but when we ask them, how did you get this? And they give you an answer that doesn't really show the uh, the level that they're at. That's pretty suspicious. I mean, I, I, for sure. And and I think it's it's one of my huge obsessions is I, I really want to try to win the worlds without steroids. That That's my big thing. Uh, whether I do it or not, it, it doesn't matter so much because I'll be okay either way. But the thing that frustrates me with the, the steroid use in our sport is that so many people that do it also want to have a big say on how you should train. Um, but they're, they're completely ignoring and not admitting the fact that the steroids is the factor that is making a huge difference in their training. Um, so like, I think there was a study done where they, they had a sample of like some people, I don't know the precise numbers, but, um, they had a sample of people take steroids and, uh, and then like some amount of people just uh, go to the gym and lift really hard. And then like, whatever sample like uh you know took it for like three months or whatever it was and the other sample just sat on the couch doing nothing and the people sitting on the couch doing nothing have more gains than the people that did strength for like three months right um furthermore like the ability to recover right if you do i like with my strength training you know for me if i if i'm doing my strength really seriously and i start doing jujitsu like like hard like even two to three times a week i immediately see it drop in my strength training like immediately right but then you'll have these guys doing jiu-jitsu three times a day and then they're like you know then we go strength train it's like no you don't like you you're that is not how you build strength and you know to people that have never gotten into conditioning and stuff like this can come off as kind of like uh maybe bitter about it but i promise you as soon as you go hey i want to get strong and you start you start doing the science like if you say you you know nothing about how to get strong first thing you're going to do is google like, how do I get strong? And then you're going to start reading, like, you know, what do strong people do? And you start getting into it. And you start going down the rabbit hole and you start seeing, oh, well, this is what they say to do strength. And then you start seeing what everyone's doing. You're like, well, this is the complete opposite. And then you try to do it and you say, well, my body's falling apart. I'm getting injured. My measurable gains are dropping. I'm not getting stronger. Everything is going to hell, right? And then it's like, what? what is the missing link here? Why are these other people training three times a day and getting stronger Meanwhile, I, I'm not. What's going on? And then you start to realize you have to tra- change the training format. So then you, you start realizing you need to prioritize your strength. If you want to be a, close to as strong as them, you need to prioritize your strength training, lower the jiu-jitsu volume a bit, and try to focus on more specific technical work so that you have a chance to have your strength comparable to where they're at. And the other advantage you have, um, also why mobility is so important, is because mobility is something that cannot be affected by drugs. I hope that at least not right now, I hope there's not a drug coming out to make you flexible too. That'd be frustrating. <laughs> um, but, but, uh, you know, it's like, that's something that they can't take. Right. So they can't take a pill for that. Right. You know, so it's like, uh, you know, um, yeah. So, you know, so mobility is one. And then the other advantage you have or not advantage, but the best chance you have versus steroid person is on tournament day. If you try to go toe to toe with a steroid person in training over the course of a week, you're going to lose because you may Monday morning train with them and have a good training session by Wednesday, Thursday, you're going to be fucking dead, right? Because your body cannot recover. 
they will feel on Thursday and Friday just like they did on Monday, but you're going to be shredded, right? So your your best chance versus a steroid person is on tournament day because you can scientifically train smart, build your strength, build your technique, ha- hopefully have techniques that they don't know about, try to break the trend and have tricky movements that they've never seen. And then on tournament day, you only need to do well with them in one match and yeah. fight smart, right? That's how you do it. But what um, they're so, I think the the old way of thinking of steroids is you get stronger and bigger, and the the current way is you could train as much as you want, and strength yeah. is a, is a side factor, but it's really that recovery is what what they're looking for, and and you know oh, yeah training sure. three times a week very hard, um yeah that that could because be because they a, don't a have limit. to care about intensity of training right that's the big thing is like. You know, if I could train, if I was trying to get good at chess, I could sit in my house and not talk to anyone and practice this for 10 hours a day every day, right? So, but if you want to do that in jiu-jitsu, you can't do that because your yeah. body starts falling apart. You start getting injured. You get weak. You literally will get weaker, right? If you train jiu-jitsu 10 hours a day every day, people who don't train strength or anything they don't understand, they think, oh, well, you know, he's training 10 times or 10 hours a day. He's going to be super strong. No, you actually get weaker than someone who doesn't do that, right? you will be a weaker human being, right? Um, so uh, the, the thing is that these guys, because of their training format, they don't train like kind of like and specifically and like trying to like lower the, they don't care about that. They can basically just get like four hours of hard mat time in a day and recover every time because yeah. they have steroids. If you're not doing steroids, which most recreational people training are not, right? Then you need to find another way to try to get close to the mat time they have but you need to be do or more mat time than they have if you want to beat them, right? Then you need to do it in a way that you're uh, not overloading your system, so you can keep that that mat time comparable. And then you also want to try to peak your strength to be close to them, because if they're doing four hours a day and you do four hours a day, but then they're gonna, your gonna strength is gonna be dropping while their strength is going up because they're on some substance. Yeah, it that's a that's a tough challenge, and I uh, really look up to you for your goal of. Uh, winning worlds and it's always fun to to watch you and uh, when you're competing so that brings us to the endurance uh what are your help help me out here to understand the endurance side of of all these different categories yeah so um with endurance like uh even the word endurance can be a little bit confusing because like when you're competing in jiu-jitsu you kind of have like like, uh, are you thinking about like your lungs or like your heart? Or are you thinking about like the lactic acid, the burn in your muscles? And we're kind of trying to build all of that. Um, and the thing is, there's like, if you look into like the sports science on, uh, a lot of this stuff, it's very, there's a lot of people suggesting different ideas and things. So there's no like one perfect answer. So I'm just going to tell you what I, the way I like to go about my training on building the endurance and some of the concerns that I think, uh, should be a big concern for a lot of people and, and some good workarounds. So if I think strength is like kind of the bedrock for uh, a lot of your endurance. So for example, if, uh, you know, I use the pull up example all the time. If you, if you're strong enough to do like a, uh, 60 kilo or like 130 pound weighted pull up, which is what my one rep max was at the end of last summer. Um, then I can do like 30, like regular pull ups, like, like without ever working high rep pull ups. But when you do want to like increase your endurance, you kind of, you, you want to peak. So for me, I try to focus on my strength like year round. And then when there's a big tournament, I want to peak at, then I'll start doing higher repetition stuff. But for me, generally I, that for my endurance, I like to do speed drills. Now, uh, a lot of people will get their endurance just from like hard, regular rounds. 
And the one of the you can do that, and I've done that for a lot of my career as well. But one of the dangers with that is when you're doing like regular rounds, uh, if you're you don't actually push super hard the entire course of the match. Because what can like, I'll give you some examples? Like maybe you're in closed guard, and uh, you you want to push your cardio, but tactically in a match you should kind of be hold the closed guard and look for the right grip to set up your next attack. Uh, but if you're trying to push your cardio, that's not going to push your cardio, right? That's more fighting technically. So when I do my regular rounds, like where I'm in class doing six, eight minute rounds or whatever we do, I try to treat my matches like I would a tournament. Like I, you know, if I'm tired and I don't have the energy to come up on a single leg takedown, I'll hold for like 20 seconds until I have the energy. And then I come up on the single leg. So I train myself to fight like I would in a tournament. I, I try to think about the points and like what's strategic and, you know, how do I set up my attack and things like that. But if you're doing, if you want to push your endurance, speed drills can be very effective. So I'll take a move that I already know well. I don't like to drill moves that I don't know that well, right? If I, I, I only speed drill with moves that I trust that I'm doing the technique properly. Otherwise, you can reinforce like a bad habit. But like, let's say we do like a Toriando, and I can go Toriando side to side. I can do that extremely hard for. You can set up your own timeline. You can do like one minute with 30 second rest. You can do 20 second with 10 seconds of rest. I like to do like a minute to two minutes with one to two minute rest or uh, sorry, 30 seconds to one minute rest. Uh, and when you do that, because of the fact that you're you're not fighting against opponent, you don't have an ego involved, like you don't care if you mess up, you're going to get passed. Uh, and it's a very controlled thing. You limit the amount of injuries that are possible. Uh, you know, you don't, you have no excuse not to push. So you, I find that I can actually push much harder when I'm doing speed drills, uh, than I can in the, in the context of a regular match. So for me, in like a normal training night, if I'm like two or three weeks out from a big tournament, I have my normal strength program that I've been doing. I have my, all my technique I've been doing. And then that night, the main focus is, is like rolling. So I'm getting a good workout, like 60 minutes of, of regular rolling is still going to be a good aerobic pace or even anaerobic, but it's not super high intensity. So if I have a big tournament coming up leading up to the tournament, I'll do the same thing like six, eight minute rounds, a lot of rounds rolling. And then at the end I'll add in maybe like five to 10 speed drill rounds of like one to two minutes pushing high intensity with short breaks like that. And I think that's a really good way to peak your endurance leading up to the tournament. Um, also with like the frequency of doing endurance training, that's another thing. Again, like I'm not an expert on this topic, so I don't want to go too far uh, off of my expertise. But this is just what I have found to work well for me. Uh, is like if you look at like uh, say someone who's like a mile runner, or maybe even a little bit further than that. I don't know what they do in kilometers, but you know th those guys they don't run the mile as hard and as fast as they can twice a day every day, right? They I don't think they even like run their max performance, but like once every few weeks or even once a month. I, I don't, I'm not an expert on the topic, but uh, it, they're certainly not doing it like that. And, and people often are overtraining their cardio because they think that they can do two times a day with this extremely high anaerobic workload. Uh, when in reality, you can get away with like, if you do proper strength training, even three to four times a week of very hard, intense cardio is more than enough to have good cardio for the tournament. It's interesting. And you kind of piece all these together and uh, what, do you, what do you call these, all these elements? Uh, uh, well, I mean, I kind of played with this idea for a while, thinking about, like, trying to help guys get better. Um, and, you, you know, it's like I, I kind of refer to this just as performance, right? People always want to get better, and they think about their technique, right? But, but there's a lot going into performing well. Performance is how you do in sparring. 
And that's the end goal. My job as a coach is to make my students perform in sparring or when you go to the self-defense aspect, perform when you're in a fight. Right. And that's really important. Right. It's not if someone attacks you on the street, you can't tell them, oh, but I know the technique really well. It's like no one cares. Right. It's, It's hard reality. So when someone's trying to, you know, have a good guard, they may know all the technique, but if they don't take their mobility seriously, they're going to have a more difficult time. And sometimes it's easier to develop your mobility or your strength or mobility or your strength is more the limiting factor than even your technique is. Right. Same thing with endurance. Right. Um, so you, I think, you know, if you want to make it like an equation, like performance equals strength plus mobility plus endurance plus technique. And then lastly, you can put the mindset in. I, I would almost remove that and make that a separate thing. So it's mainly the strength, mobility, endurance, and technique, right? And for each person, it may be different things they need to focus on. Uh, if you're brand new to jiu-jitsu and you're like, uh, you know, maybe you need to focus mainly on just the technique and training. And if you just roll a lot and work on your technique, you're going to develop a good enough base uh, cardio system from training. Uh, and, and that's enough, Right. But then as you start getting higher level, maybe you need to really step your strength up. So you may need to even tone down the intensity of your jiu-jitsu and really prioritize your strength training, your grip training for a while to get that up to level. Or maybe you're strong, maybe you're very uh, technical, but your mobility is really poor and then you got to focus on that for a while. So we all have different things we need to focus on, right? I, I think the endurance one is really interesting because I think a lot of guys try to focus on their endurance year round. When in reality, they should be doing a lot more strength work and a lot more like uh, higher volume jujitsu training. So they're doing a lot more specific training and like maybe training an hour or two hours a day, but at a lower intensity, developing that technique. And then as they get closer to a big tournament, they'll have the technique down, they'll have their strength, they'll have the mobility, and then they can really work about worry about peaking hard and driving that endurance hard. What would you say to the person who says, Jonathan? I'm nervous before the tournament. I think my uh, the mental side is is where I'm I'm having trouble. Yeah, so um, you know that a lot of people really struggle with that mental aspect, and uh, it's like similar to dealing with uh, anxiety because I, I had anxieties uh, or anxiety attacks at one point in my life, and I kind of learned to get through it. And I, I think people get so stressed out with the fact that they're nervous that they think it's bizarre that that's going to cost them the tournament. I have had tournaments, some of the best performances in my life, I puked right before fighting because I was so fucking nervous, right? It's, it's not as if you being nervous is a hindrance to you doing well. You can have extreme nerves with an extremely bad mindset in your head where it's like, oh my God, I'm going to get killed. Uh, you know, you can have all that bad stuff going on in your head and then still go kick ass, right? And once you understand that, I, it seems like kind of counterintuitive, but once you understand that that's the case, the, the nerves stop more because they lose their power because it's, it's kind of like a cycle, right? You start to think the fact that you're nervous is what's going to make you lose, but then you think that you're going to lose if you don't stop being nervous. So then you try to be not nervous, which then makes you feel like you have something to do. So then it cycles. That's how anxiety works. So you, you, keep, you keep stressing yourself out thinking there's something you need to do. When if you just accept it, like, hey, I'm nervous and like I'm scared. I think this guy might beat me, but you know, I'm just going to go give it my best and see what happens. That's honestly, I, in my opinion, that's usually how you have your best performances. Um, and then also, one of the things that always helps me is just focusing on the technique itself, right? I just try to think like, what are the moves I like to do? 
you know, okay, I'll, you know, visualize doing my triangle chokes, visualize, you know, doing my favorite guard passes, and just try to think about the technique. The more I think about the technique, and when I'm fighting, I just think about I'm not fighting this person, I'm fighting the positions they play, and trying to use the technique I like to do, it, it tends to eliminate the stress. And then if the stress is there, just let it be there, and, and don't don't think that there's anything wrong with that or that you're you're somehow a broken product and that you can't win like that because plenty of world-class guys like that. Uh, the guy I closed the Worlds out with in 2011, Michelle Lange, he, uh, he retired. It's Michael Lange's brother. Uh, a lot of people maybe don't know him because he hasn't competed in a long time. But I remember at the time he was just like a complete killer. He was just murdering everyone. And I remember being in the division and me and him were teammates and you know we closed out the division together. And I remember Michael Lange always coming up to me. He's like, hey, man, can you can you talk with my brother? He gets really nervous before he competes. And it just being so like shocking to me because it was like everyone's terrified of Michelle Lange. He's so good. Right. And but like he was always really, really nervous. Right. He always gets super nervous. But it's like he's one of the best guys in the division. Right. Yeah. Is I think that's a good thing to, to realize as a competitor. It's it's normal. You're nervous. Yeah, it's completely normal. It's normal. It's part of it. Uh, nothing is failing with your system here to be nervous or uh, to have some self doubt creep in or anything. And we talked a little bit about this, you know, before we started recording. And you can't be confident enough and come in with really bad jujitsu or or some some holes in your game and win. Like the, the confidence isn't going to win you the match. It, but right, it can cost sure. you the match if you if you uh, we talked a little bit about that too. If, if you're great at the you know at the gym and, and you're always submitting to everybody and then you have trouble when you're competing, that would be a sign that okay maybe it is something about your nerves. But right. most of the yeah. time you'll be nervous. That's fine. Uh, it's not gonna. It's or it, or if you spend all your time worried about how to be confident and walk in there and like you own the place. That is not actually going to protect your neck if you get caught. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, that's I mean, that's ultimately why we do jujitsu, right? Because, uh, like, I think you made the point earlier when we were uh, before the podcast. You, you said that uh, you know when you come in, a lot of people are confident when they first come in, right? You come in thinking like, think about the meathead who comes in like wearing a tap out shirt, who like lifts a bunch of weights and is never trained. He thinks he's going to kill everyone, right? He's like, oh, I'm going to be amazing, right? And then he gets humble because the technique works, right? That's kind of what jujitsu is about, right? It's if you could just, you know, by being really confident, beat people that are much better than you, then that that would defeat the whole point of the technique, right? Yeah, I think it just kind of underlines where that falls into the equation. Yeah. Um, sorry, off topic a bit, but uh, one more point about the endurance that I think is yeah. probably useful for people to hear um, is like. Also, some people often wonder, like, oh, should I be doing things like running? Should I be, you know, go run stairs or, you know, do CrossFit or whatever? Um, I think those things can have their place. I did for a while, did a lot of swimming. Uh, I was uh, talking with Cole Miller a lot uh, on, like, conditioning and stuff. And that stuff can definitely work. Uh, but it just depends on your, like, again, you. everyone needs to make their own personalized training schedule. So, like, if you have to work full-time, you have a job and different things, then, you know, you, maybe you can't make it to jiu-jitsu that day. So then substituting your, a jiu-jitsu workout with a hard anaerobic session of, like, running stairs may make sense, right? But, like, uh, me as a full-time jiu-jitsu athlete, I found, for me, that I don't like to do any of my cardio outside of doing jiu-jitsu-specific stuff anymore. Um, 
every now and then I'll go run stairs uh, if I can't make it to jujitsu or my, or if I was injured or something. But I find that you know what I was doing before the Europeans. I wake up in the morning at like six a.m. and I go for like an hour run. But then I would go into the gym after that, and then I would go do. Uh, you know, uh, two hours of specific training work, right? It was like, I just blew a ton of energy running an hour. Now I'm doing and blowing even more energy doing two more hours of work. So it always makes more sense that I could have replaced that hour of running with an hour of light rolling. And that would correct for, you know, getting more timing, seeing more positions. So in that sense, I always, if I can, I always prefer to get my uh, cardio and conditioning stuff from specific stuff for jujitsu. If you want to, you know, just kind of light roll for an hour, that can kind of push your aerobic system. Uh, if you if you want to like build up like lactic tolerance in your anaerobic system, you know, you can even target particular muscle groups. Like you could do start with the sleeves and like spider guard, just like drill omoplatas while they're standing. You're gonna burn your grips out like you would in a tournament, right? If you want to burn your uh, legs out, you know, you can continually stand up coming up on a single leg from being on bottom, right? And burn your legs out, your low back out. So you can be, you can always find a way to very specific train and push your cardio super hard. I always think that's better. Um, and then for strength building, that's where you need to go to the gym. It's really hard to build actual raw maximum strength on in the jujitsu. So then you do need to be lifting heavy weights or doing gymnastic workouts and, and maximum strength type stuff. So that's where going to the gym and stuff fits in. But for endurance and cardio, generally I prefer doing uh, jujitsu specific stuff. And if I can't do something jujitsu related, then doing like a, a hard anaerobic like stairs or something you know, or so if you like to do like, you know, like sled pushing and things like that, that can definitely fit in. But I think it's always best if you can find a jujitsu specific way to do it. Yeah. It, it, the, the key is if you could find it, you know, if your yeah. gym offers classes just in the evenings and for some reason today you can't make it or your work schedule is yeah, exactly. messed up, you got to get what you can. It, it might be getting up early before you go to work and, and doing stairs or yeah. something. Uh, it's not always the problem with, with training jiu-jitsu is you need another person <laughs> to pull yeah, it off. Exactly. That's the difficulty, right? So, and again, that's why I think that like the equation performance equals strength plus mobility plus endurance plus technique helps so much because then you can kind of look at your schedule and be like, what is being accounted for here? It's like, okay, I have a tournament in five months I want to do good at, right? Well, I can work on my strength for about three and a half months, right? And then that's going to leave you six weeks at the end to peak. Right. So, OK, I'm going to work on my strength for like three and a half months. You, you set up a schedule and the, and the strength lifts you want to do. Uh, it's always best to like measure like your your current strength level. And hopefully in three and a half months, you should be at, at a higher lift. You should be benching more, squatting more, deadlifting more, have a stronger grip, like be able to, you know, what, what, whatever grip strength you do, be, have it measurable. So you see three and a half months, my strength went up. And then technique wise, OK, I need to work on opening the closed guard. I need to work on getting out of the 50-50. I need to work on finishing my – you can make a – I do that all the time. I make, and then, you know, in three and a half months, I'm like, wow, now I get out of closed guard much better. I can get out of the 50-50. My triangle foot choke finish is better. My strength, I can now – I gained, you know, 40 pounds on my bench. I gained 40 pounds on my squat. You know, uh, if you're on steroids, you gain a hell of a lot more than <laughs> that. Um, you know, and, and you can measure that. You can see your mobility. Oh, before I could only go to this range of motion, now I can go to this range of motion. Right? And you can see all that. And then you get like six weeks out from the tournament. And then you, when you want to do your endurance stuff, then you go, okay, let me scale down my strength just a little bit. I still think it's good to do it all the way up to the tournament. Just do a little bit less intense just to maintain. And then start scaling up the speed drills. If you can't do speed drills, you can go to the gym and start doing high rep pull-ups, 
high rep bench press or push ups, you know, depending on what you do. And, and again, you want everything to be measurable, you know, so I think that's the key. You know, you could look at, okay, how many omoplatas can I do in two minutes, right? And then try to increase the speed. Yeah. Uh, Jonathan, there's not a ton of uh, money pouring into the sport to figure out what's the best way to, to hit these peaks. But the good news is there's other sports where they, they do spend a lot of money and time and they have yep. scientists hitting them. Where are you, I can tell you, you've done a lot of research. Where are you looking uh, to find information like this that kind of compare that and, and bring it over to jiu-jitsu? Uh, wrestling. Okay. Uh, yeah, wrestling and uh, and judo, right? Because they're, they're, they are sports that have been around for a long time, right? Um, and there's so much more like effort has been put into figuring out the right ways to train and things like that. I was listening to Ben Askren talk, who's actually from uh, St. Louis, where I'm from originally. Uh, actually, I went to, just completely unrelated, but I went to school with Mike Chandler. He was on my wrestling team, so we wrestled <laughs> together. Actually, he fights in Bellator. Yeah. Um, so a lot of good guys coming out of Missouri. Um, but uh, Ben Askren was talking about one of the biggest issues he sees in jiu-jitsu uh, is that uh, they do so much regular live training and rather than doing a lot of technical, specific work, right? And that's exactly what I think as well, right? It's There's so much just doing live, regular rounds all the time rather than going, hey, let's start in a triangle choke and try to finish this thing and the other guy's defending, things like that. Um, but yeah, so I think wrestling, they, they have very advanced thoughts on training and they do that you know they have an off season they do a massive amount of strength training uh we are my gym here used to be in uh we used to share a gym location with a uh, wrestling club and it was like they have some like olympic level wrestlers there and stuff and one thing i always pointed out to my guys was that they're in the wrestling room in their weight room on the chalkboard they had all the wrestlers names with the uh, with their um max lifts for like bench squat deadlift weighted pull up everything right because they they always kept measurement on that stuff right so i think that's uh, a good one to look at also another thing i found interesting was uh i was listening to the documentary with jimmy about jimmy pedro uh i don't remember what it was called it was like fury on the mats or something it, it's on youtube for free i think the the documentary about jimmy pedro and at one point he was talking about training for the olympics and it was so funny to me because he was saying about how intense the training was. And he was like, he was saying that like he, uh, I don't remember it specifically. So I, this is just a rough guess. You can go watch the documentary if you want. But he said something like, you know, I was training like super hard. I mean, we're talking like, you know, five or six times a week. And, you know, like sometimes uh, I would even lift on the same day. I mean, it, his training schedule was like, like one third that of what the current modern brazilian jiu-jitsu competitor is doing it was like unbelievably low comparative right but it's probably because he was not on performance enhancers as well because he's competing in the olympics right uh so i don't know i find role models like that that i think are uh drug free and uh you know just icons of their own sport and try to find inspiration from them yeah that's awesome and and we're all uh, rooting for you to do well in 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 pushing that message uh, you know, something I think of when I hear this list, you know, technique, strength, mobility, endurance, and, and those yep. sort of things. The one that we all focus on is, is technique, and, and it's great. Yeah. You know, if, you're training, if someone's training with you, they have, you know, world-class technique. They have a guy who's, who's competing at Black Belt Worlds, who's got the goal of, of getting the gold, and, and clearly the technique is there, and your teaching method is awesome. But most people don't have that. But you can, in these other categories— 
it's not as nearly as difficult to become world class in that because technique you need uh, you need somebody to show you or you need to do a bunch of research. But you can become world class at mobility or world class at endurance largely yeah, by yourself. <laughs> yeah, and that, and that's the cool thing is that those are the things. Like I always, that always helps me mentally when I get an injury, because anytime I get injured and I can't train jujitsu hard, I can tell myself, well, you know, if I can't train jujitsu hard, then that means my strength gains are going to go up a lot more. So I always find that I'm being the most efficient with my time possible. So no matter what, I'm trying to always be efficient with my time. So if I can't train jujitsu for, for two months, well, then my strength training is get all my energy is going to be going into strength training. And I'm going to be a hell of a lot stronger than I would have been had I been doing strength and, and jujitsu. So then in two months from now, I'm going to be a lot stronger than if I had been doing jujitsu and strength. Right. So you can always find a way to kind of optimize your time. Um, uh, you know, and then, yeah, you know, if you're training at a smaller gym, like in the Midwest or something where, you know, you're not on the West coast training Brazilian jujitsu, you know, then these things like strength and mobility and endurance, if you train those smart, that's a really good way for you to try to outgun the, uh, you know, the guys training at the top gyms. Yeah. You, you can't necessarily get a hundred points of credit to your character's name on technique. Uh, yeah, but you could definitely get the other ones maxed out and absolutely. And, and, and most and you know guys what? People, don't take the other ones seriously. Yeah. They may be lacking in some of those categories and, and you're ahead. Especially of, mobility. Of, mobility is a big one. You think is people lack. I, I think that's the most under focused on one of all. No, I almost see no one taking their mobility seriously. They just kind of have a, a natural uh, flexibility level. They just assume that that's all they have. Uh, and then they never put effort into it. And it's the easiest way to improve your performance by far. So where does diet or nutrition fall into this? Yeah. So um, I think diet and nutrition is super important. I didn't used to take it super seriously when I was younger, and that's because I didn't strength train seriously. So if you just do jujitsu, you can kind of get away with being unhealthy sometimes. And then because you're not measuring everything, you know, let's say you go out and you drink and have a, you know, a bad night eating bad food, drinking alcohol. And then the next day you come in the gym, you feel kind of shitty, but you can kind of like improve your technique that day or kind of roll different and you could, you could learn something. And then you kind of that way, it's like hard to measure what the difference is, right? Of course, you have sometimes you just feel like shit and roll really bad when you after being drunk too. But but you can kind of make up for feeling like crap by learning new technique and stuff. So you don't have this clear, obvious failure, right? When you take your strength training seriously and you're really working hard at it and you're like measuring your lifts, so like you know you know, oh man, on. On Wednesday, I, you know, I did 200 pounds. I'm going for 205 on Friday, right? And you know that, right? Uh, as soon as you go out on Thursday night after lifting on uh, like uh, Wednesday, your next lift is on Friday, say. As soon as you go out Thursday night and you go drink and party and have a fun time and you come back in Friday morning and you try to lift weights and then you see that you were supposed to be going for 205, but now you hit 185 or something, <laughs> then you go fuck this right because you you work so hard to accomplish that goal and like i i got really obsessed with getting the one arm pull up uh like last summer that was my obsession i worked on it for like eight months like a legitimate no assist dead hanging one arm pull up right it's a, it's a huge like strength feat that i've always wanted to accomplish you know something like you tell your grandkids you were able to do at one point um and 
you know, I, I the difference I would feel just between like eating a like a bad meal or, or drinking at all, everything has to be in line. So as soon as I started taking my strength seriously, I saw how damn important my diet and nutrition is, right? Um, so I think, it, you know, check for yourself. Some people can get away with being a little bit less healthy. For me, I like I, I remember when I was younger, I trained with Cabrinha and like he was always super healthy, right? And I would eat bad and I was like, you know, I, I could just never imagine being like Cabrinha, just never wanting to eat bad food. But once I started getting into to strength training, it's like, that's how I am now. I, I never want to eat bad food for the most part. I just only want to eat healthy. But it's because I reprogrammed my uh, my brain. I don't know. It's like most people listen to this podcast, training jiu-jitsu. I, I assume almost everyone. <laughs> um, and they they if I told any of those people, hey, don't work out for three weeks, they would they would be miserable, right? Because they they understand how good they feel after they work out. Because they've kind of bought into what it feels like to feel good from working out, right? Um, and that, but if you take someone who is not does not exercise at all, they're like fat and they just like they're on the couch all the time. If you tell them to exercise, they're like they're like, oh, I don't want to do that. It's terrible, right? Like to them, it's just this miserable thing that you're supposed to do and to eventually lose weight and get in shape, right? But they don't understand that people who exercise all the time, you, you don't do it because it's this thing that sucks that you just do because you know you have to do it you actually do it because the way you feel afterwards feels so good and that feeling good outweighs you know whatever pain you would have in the moment while doing it right and i feel like any meaningful change that i end up having in my life is when i find a way to buy into getting more, more enjoyment out of the act of doing the thing than than the goal itself right so like with eating healthy, as soon as I started to see the, I felt how good it felt to get stronger and see progress. And then I started to correlate eating bad food with failure in that. Then my diet immediately fixed. Right. Um, so I, I think that, yeah, I, I couldn't say it, it's important enough. Another good book reference for that is, uh, uh, the grappler's guide to sports nutrition by John Berardi. I read that when I was like, I don't know, like 20 or something a long time ago. It helped me a lot. Awesome. I'll put a link to that in the notes as well. Kind of uh, running a little short on time here. I do want to get, are are you teaching many seminars? Are you traveling much? What's going on with that? Uh, yeah, so I've been doing uh, a little bit more seminars recently. Um, for Worlds this year, I was <clears throat> I was going to compete uh, up until about like a week and a half ago. I had a really bad back injury again, so I've been out for like a week. Uh, I know this is going to yeah, play this is, after uh, the Worlds. So. Yeah, May 16th. Yeah. So yeah, okay. I'm recording yeah, so this, this is still May 16th. That's so, fine. Okay. So this would be really ironic if I actually win the Worlds and I say that I'm not competing. But, <laughs> um, but uh, so there's a good chance that I'm probably not going to compete because I haven't been able to train the last week and a half and it's really hard to train right now. Um, but we'll see. I'm going to see how the rest of this week goes and maybe I'll end up going. But uh, if not, I'm going to be uh, traveling into the uh, Atlanta and St. Louis area to do some seminars. I'll be stateside um, around June eighth i'll get in town i'll probably be in town for three weeks so of course if anyone is interested in seminars with me uh like message me on uh, instagram or messenger um uh you can find me at jonathan thomas bjj somewhere on there and uh you know please hit me up yeah for sure awesome and uh what are your i guess to talk about your youtube channel what are your goals that you have with your youtube channel so uh currently um right now I just started with just like doing videos like, you know, once or twice a week. Uh, and I'm starting to really focus on my, my competition, uh, career at the same time. 
Uh, ultimately, what I really do want to do is I want to evolve the YouTube channel into a a new format of people for uh, for people to learn. Right. I really want to focus on. Eventually, I'll have. Uh, I'll, I'll probably start with like some uh, way to categorize all the videos and move on. Uh, maybe I'll do like a website eventually, but I, I really want to structure and develop this new format for people to learn where it's focused on uh, micro positions and specific training in those positions. So in an ideal world, I would like to have this system where uh, people can go and then I have a categorized list of positions to understand like lasso spider, double sleeve, X guard, 50, 50. And then there's a, a combination of a ton of sparring footage in those positions with a lot of combination of technical advice and conceptual ideas. Um, and then maybe even like competition footage of other competitors in the positions. Um, and kind of give people a place to go so that if they adopt my training style of really getting into the specific training, they can go to the website and go, I'm developing my uh, spider passing, right? They can go, they can go to that position and they can kind of get a, a layout of like what all the main attack styles the guy's going to be doing on bottom, what the possible options for are, are, uh, are for you on top. And then like kind of like a way to speed up that learning process. So you can adopt my, my training style and then have a, a, a kind of a one stop location to go that anytime you're having a problems in a position, you have like a wealth of knowledge on that topic there. Um, and then also that'll probably tie in with like seminars, you know? So like the way I like to do seminars even is like kind of like pick a topic, right? Like, uh, not just cover a ton of things, but like do a seminar on passing the daily Hiva guard where we do a large combination of going in depth on the position but then also going through a ton of specific training. I do a ton of specific training at my seminars so that I can have the guys spar in the position and correct them real time to actually get them using the technique by the end of the seminar. Yeah, that that's awesome. So <laughs> everybody should be able to go to the show notes and uh, find your YouTube channel and subscribe there. Watch a couple of videos and see his style. If you've enjoyed the interview, you're going to love the videos. And if you are able to get him for a seminar, that was, it's a great opportunity. I've been to one of your seminars and it was fantastic. So uh, I enjoyed learning yeah. with you from um, there. And then one more thing uh, as well is uh, the gym here in, in Gothenburg, Sweden, that I yeah. train at Mahala Jiu-Jitsu. So uh, if you're either training in Sweden, you probably already know us if you're living in Gothenburg. Uh, it's a small town and uh, we not a ton of Jiu-Jitsu schools. Um, you know, and if you're traveling through or you're going through Europe, Gothenburg's a beautiful city. So swing by, we're always uh, happy to have visitors come in and we'll show you the town, and get you some good training too. So, yeah, that's awesome. Open invite, uh, take them up on it if you're in the area. Yeah. I've had a, had a blast talking with you today. I appreciate you hopping on here with me. Um, any oh, final, no it's a lot of fun. Any final thoughts or uh, things you want to say to the people out there listening? Yeah, I guess uh, the main thing is like, yeah, I guess one of the most important things we didn't really get to cover in depth was, uh, you know, just whatever your goals are in jiu-jitsu, like if you want to be a certain skill level, you want to win a certain tournament, it, I think it's really important that you you set up your own personalized schedule to address, you know, the factors that we talked about, the strength training, the technique development, you know, including the studying and the specific training, uh, you know, the uh, mobility work, the endurance training. Uh, and just like really design your own schedule that kind of accounts for that make sure that you're accounting for all of it and, and certain things will be more important for certain people maybe you're already a really strong guy you just need to focus more on your technique development for a period maybe you're super technical uh, and super flexible but you need to put prioritize your strength for a bit but you know try to really spend time with yourself thinking about your schedule and where you want to be in the long term and uh, always measurable progress is the most important thing you need to measure your progress 
Awesome. Uh, I don't know. I hope all, I hope uh, all the stuff we talk about help people, and I would really appreciate the opportunity to share my thoughts. Awesome. Appreciate you helping on here with me. No problem. Well, I want to thank Jonathan for helping on here and really sharing with us the uh, performance equation is, is basically what it boils down to. And think about it, technique, strength, mobility, endurance. You add all those up and that equals your ability to p- perform on the mat. And almost as a side note, you know, you have uh, like mindset. And I think we did a good job of explaining how he feels about that. Like if if you can't confidence yourself into be beating somebody who's way better at your jiu-jitsu, it just, that doesn't work. You, you can go on the mat super confident, and if you suck at jiu-jitsu, that's not going to work. But if you're going out there and you're having problems and you're doing great against other people in the gym and you go out and compete and it just doesn't work, maybe it is uh, an issue with with mindset. But other than that, it's not a thing that's going to add a lot to your equation. It's, it's normal to be nervous. It's normal to be uh, have butterflies in your stomach for a, a big match. That's that's just how it goes, and, and that's what everybody's experiencing. Um, yeah, I think that's interesting. The uh, technique, mobility, endurance, and strength, those are what make up the performance equation. And I'm glad Jonathan was willing to share that with us. We've got an article this week. It's on Hyperfly's website, hyperflybrand.com. The title of the article is The Artist versus the Athlete. How about, Gary, are you an artist or are you an athlete? Uh, Neither. (laughs) No. (laughs) That's what I thought when I saw the title. (laughs) You know, when I was younger, I thought I was an athlete. Um, But, you know, I really do consider jujitsu as a way of expressing myself. Um, You know, I'm not very fluid on the mat I you know you're not going to catch me uh, you know inverting and doing some cool looking stuff but uh, you know I would probably say I'm the more of an artist you know the way I try to use jiu-jitsu to express myself I guess because uh, I'm sure as heck not an athlete anymore I'm slow uh, but uh, you know I try to I, I have fun out there so uh, I don't know what about you where do you think Joe and, and Byron too where do you think you're at well, you know, the thing about being an artist, I was thinking about this when I read the article, is uh, not all art is the same. And I, I think it's easy to think of artistic jujitsu practitioners as guys that, like you say, they do the, the barambolos and inversions and cartwheel passes. And, and that is uh, artistic jujitsu. But I think when guys have a, a really slick way of like securing a Kimura grip or adjusting a grip on a choke you know I think in the small details you can be artistic as well and I I guess I would probably say that's where I'm at not that I'm good at those things but uh, I'm not going to be doing the cartwheel passes like you Gary and um, (laughs) but I don't do a cartwheel pass mine's called the fart wheel pass Yeah, so that's where I'm at. How about you, Byron? I think it's uh, probably like most, uh, a bit of a hybrid. Uh, if you find yourself, let's just say you've locked on a, I don't know, a Kimura, a triangle. I know the triangle came a little bit better. And are you going to like smash your way through this to success and get the submission? Um, be fast and all that stuff. Or are you going to uh, observe what the person is doing 
and sometimes even bring in an element of creativity to solve the problem. That to me is more of an artistic side. If you're if you're thinking your way through things, or if you're using your body to get through things, I think that those are two a little bit different. And I think that we all do a blend of of those. If you come in the class and your instructor has basically laid down a game plan for you, and you roll according to that or some a lot of people roll just like their instructor rolls i mean if they're lucky i mean that's a great thing to to be able to to duplicate someone's game like that there's less art in that i feel but as the time goes by if you're a person who is willing to throw some things out uh, find something on your own maybe or bring something in your game and develop it a little bit better it doesn't take you long to really develop a unique game and i think there's an element of art in that for sure yeah yeah there we go. Byron Jabara, the robust artist. <laughs> uh, one thing that the author pointed out that I like is he made a comparison to jujitsu in general as, and not specific jujitsu practitioners, but jujitsu in general compared to some of the traditional martial arts and how there's an encouragement from within the system for each practitioner to express themselves differently. I did take a little Taekwondo with my kids. And and one of the things I remember is, you know, the instructor would come around when you were like chambering a punch and it was so critical that your hand be two inches above your hip or whatever. And and everybody's the same. And, and that just in real life doesn't work. Everybody's different. And I appreciate that about jujitsu that nobody comes around and says, Oh, your grip's got to be exactly right here. And, and your foot placement has to be exactly right there that, Everybody works with you to find whatever's going to work for you. That's awesome, Joe. I, I never really thought about that, but that is one thing I've never really heard in jiu-jitsu. Uh, you know, this is the only way to do it. It, think, it makes me think of the, the quote we had a couple weeks ago or a couple months ago that, you know, asked, you know, 10 economists or 10 black belts a question to get 10 different answers. And, uh, you know, I, I never really thought about that the way you presented it, Joe, but I do see that in, you know, some traditional martial arts where you've got to do it exactly like that. And jujitsu, uh, Hey, we're all built differently. Some of us have longer arms, shorter arms. Uh, and, uh, you know, we've got to make it work for each individual. Yep. Like Gary always says, there's more than one way to skin a cat 14 <laughs> to be exact. I don't know how he figured that out, but he says there's 14 ways, 14 ways. You got that right, Joe. Yeah, we'll put a link to Gary's YouTube video, and it is terrible. It is really bad. <laughs> but the cat doesn't get hurt. Actually, Gary is bleeding way more than anything else on that video. But it's an interesting concept, and I think you could be very good at jiu-jitsu and, and, and fall more on one side or the other. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that if you're an artist, you're not, you can't perform well, or if you're an athlete, you're not... Uh, very creative with things. Um, when somebody starts showing you something and they say, "Here's okay, here's what I do. Here's my part of how I finish this technique. If that's different than most people, I think there's an element of art to that. And I think that when you get to pretty high levels, people have to figure out and solve their own problems. Uh, I, I would... I think it's a, probably a good plan when you start out to just learn what they're showing you and not try to, to branch off too far, although it can be fun and exciting. Uh, you gotta, you got to get that base. you got to understand how, like if you're painting, you know, how mixing two different colors, what color they make, and, and how shading works, and, and how to get you know, Gary's face to look right on the picture and, and, and get the basics 
Because if it looks wrong, I guess nobody will even know how to won't even know. I was going to say, when the best did Gary's example? face ever look right? <laughs> <laughs> Before I started jujitsu, it was kind of right, guys. <laughs> yeah, Gary used to play jailhouse uh, basketball. He would volunteer to go play uh, basketball with with prisoners. So, uh, yeah, catching elbows all day long. But that sounds like back. your audiobook, but that actually happened. <laughs> Gary would 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 be he, he him and his guys had a team and they would go play basketball with with people in prison. Right or wrong, Gary? I tell you, those were the best crowds I've ever played. <laughs> I'm definitely serious. Uh, you know they uh, they were crazy. It was uh, they they loved it when you came into play. Did you guys get whooped every time? No, we we won the majority of them, but it was kind of crazy because the we went to different prisons. The Whenever you go into the prison the first time, they've got all the betting goes on and they're all betting for their, their own team. But once they see if you're good or not, and as you come back and depending on what the score was the first game, the lines change and they actually may be rooting for you. And it's kind of crazy. I remember one game we were, we were down with probably five minutes left and the crowd is just going crazy for us. And, and man, that crowd, pulled us through to the win. They were, they were so, so animated and uh, outgoing that uh, it was crazy. It was a fun environment. Yeah, this is, and this just bridges perfectly from something that is real to something that is not real, which is Gary's audio book. Uh, winning the crowd over in prison. Uh, one way or another, you've got to win the crowd over and he has legitimate experience doing this. Yeah, it's a, it's a tough audio book. It's something that I thought, you know, I've been needing to write for a long time. I mean, what do you hear and see all the time happening today is is people are getting put in prison and they haven't done anything, you know. But they're, they're all innocent, fa- yeah. They're, they've been falsely in prison. At least that's what people tell me. And so you go in there and, uh, you know, I've watched a movie about that. And, you know, the first thing they tell you to do is you either become somebody's B-I-T-C-H <laughs> Or you kick somebody's ASS. You know, those are your two things. But, you know, really, should you resort to violence or resort to uh, prostitution, uh, prostituting yourself out? You know, maybe if you make friends in there, you won't have to do that. And, you know, that was my reason behind this book. Behind is the keyword. <laughs> when, you, when you're in prison and you're... Um prostituting yourself aren't you just making friends and getting paid for it i don't know if you get paid that's the bad part you know i mean you do get some protection you know and well not the kind of protection you're thinking about byron that's i'm talking actually about want. yeah i'm talking about so nobody beats you up no that kind of protection you know but uh it's it's important i mean you're in a rough situation and you know you really do want to win over the audience and i mean there's you know, I, I've went through different things. I tried song and dance, and you know, I figured maybe these these prisoners wanted to see some song and dance. That did not work well at all. That did not go over. Well, and, uh, if belly dancing I, is not your forte, yeah, that didn't go over. You know, I I've I've tried different stuff, but you know what I realized? It's it's just being friendly to people. You know, uh, uh, when we're at lunch, uh, you know, give them you know my leftover beans or or bologna. Or give them a banana, and uh, one thing I've always said: I thought, you know, I, give them a banana. Was, we'll keep the banana out of your tailpipe. That's the one thing I've noticed. I thought it was tossed salad that they were after. 
Well, we'd have to go back and ask uh, Mr. Newman. Uh, Bill Newman. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Bill Newman. Uh, yeah. Call him his brother. Yeah. Yep. Well, a legitimate brother. But yeah, so definitely uh, check this one out, especially if you think you're going to be wrongly imprisoned. Um, it's good to read it beforehand. Either that or watch the movie uh, Get Hard with Will Ferrell, which will give you some tips there also on how to perform in prison. So uh, definitely check it out. Uh, it's a great gift. Uh, be, be out in time for Christmas. And, uh, let, you know, she'd get this for everybody. I think your quote, though, was from, was it Office Space? Yeah, definitely Office Space. I'm glad you caught that one, Byron. Yeah, that's a classic movie. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I figured that would just go over everybody's head and nobody would knew and just think I'm weird. But, oh well. And that's Still another think thing, you're too. weird. Speaking about that, being really weird and awkward, you know, a lot of times will keep you safe in prison. It'll keep people away from you. Um, so, you know, that's, uh, that's also in some of the later chapters. So I'll talk about that. Well, that sounds like an awesome audio book, Gary. But I think I'll pass. Well, don't worry, Joe. You're not passing because that's the Christmas present I'm getting you. <laughs> oh, you're, you know? Can I tra- can I trade up for the Jelly yeah. of the Month Club? Nope. If you came into prison, what we'd say is you're getting it one way or another. <laughs> All right. <laughs> uh, one way or another, I do want to mention our Patreon support group. Uh, they are outstanding and some of the biggest fans that we have. I want to give a quick shout-out to Mark, David, Brad, and a extra big shout-out to Paul. Newman? <laughs> what, what Paul has done is he's, he's one of our newer Patreon supporters, but he, he realizes we're approaching episode 250, and he's like, well, he sent me a, an email, bjjbrick at gmail.com, and said, hey, I wanted to actually support you for past episodes so he sent us some support for the past episodes uh, through our uh, PayPal account. And man, unexpected, very generous uh, of Paul. And uh, yeah, definitely not um, something that we're asking for. But if you feel inclined to support past episodes, that's also, I guess, an option. But we're just happy when we get a new Patreon supporter. It pushes us to do better. Uh, make the show uh, the best we could possibly do, and we're hoping to do more and more things uh, in the future. So, uh, yeah, this uh, the Patreon has been a big support for the podcast, and the people on there mean the world to us. Uh, if you sign up and, and, and pledge like a dollar per episode, which is a typical pledge, uh, at the end of the month, all the episodes will kind of tally up, and, and your credit card will be charged one time. And also, when you sign up, we'll send you out a 5-inch BJJ Brick Gi Patch. And a BJJ Brick sticker will welcome you into the private Facebook group where uh, a lot of times we'll float some ideas by people. Um, we might uh, have an interview coming up. I'll say, hey, I'm interviewing this person. What should I ask them? Uh, a lot of the times I'll get questions from people through that. And uh, yeah, it's just a kind of way to get you more involved with the podcast. And uh, uh, if you're on Facebook, that's perfectly fine. We'd, which I understand that completely. But uh, you'll definitely still get the the gee patch and the sticker mailed to your house or anywhere you send an address to, I guess. Yeah, that uh, admission to the private Facebook uh, group really pays for your Patreon support because oftentimes, like, tomorrow's lottery numbers are posted on today's uh, page. But only the the people that are members of that private group get that information. 
So you do definitely want to be invited to join that group. Wow. And uh, I, I didn't realize we were going to tell everybody that, but the problem is we don't know which lottery they're to, but they, they're pretty much dead on. The crazy thing is I've never won. And, you know, I've played every one of the lotteries around the world each and every week, and I've spent so much money doing it. My house is being foreclosed right now. Thanks a lot, guys. Gary, you, you got to use the numbers in the same order they're given. You can't mix them up. Oh, okay. Maybe I'll win this week and get my house back. There you go. There you go. That's a good uh, good plan, Gary. Great plan. We got a great plan coming up at the end of June. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's getting close. I'm getting excited. June 22nd, 23rd, and 24th is the BJJ Break event. Uh, this is uh, like nothing that's ever been done before for the BJJ Break podcast. Uh, we have two of our past favorite guests, Tim Sled and Roy Delgado. They'll be running seminars on the 23rd. Uh, Tim Sled's going to be doing a kids seminar. It's kind of separate from the whole event. And if, you, if you're interested in getting your kids involved in that, uh, go to foxfitnessbjj.com, and there'll be some uh, information on how to get uh, the kids signed up for the kids class. Otherwise, the adult stuff is uh, the rest of it. June 22nd, it's just in the evening. It's the Friday, open mat. We're getting some good times rolling, meeting everybody, and just kind of hanging out uh, socially. I guess that's how you hang out. 23rd is Rolly and Tim. 24th, uh, the PJ Brick crew is, is going to be doing a seminar. I got some things we're piecing together and, and uh, wanting to show you guys. And we're doing a uh, DVD giveaway. I think we're just going to do it on the 24th. We have about $550 worth of DVDs we're giving away. What happens is, uh, very fortunate that uh, I have a couple of people that send me DVDs to review, and I just have them piled up, and I don't, I've watched them, I've learned from them, and I think it's time to pass these on. So uh, some of the DVDs, uh, The Cat Wrestling Formula uh, by Neil Melanson, Peruvian Dozen, uh, The Pressure Passing Encyclopedia, The BJJ Modified Overhook. Uh, we even have... Uh, Tim Sled's Leg Drag Workshop DVD in there. Uh, five or so more on the list as well. Um, so we're just trying to give back as much as we can and have a good time with you guys. And so uh, it'll be a great weekend. We're even, as we mentioned before, planning on doing a live recording. We might all go out to the comedy club in the evening and uh, cut back and have some laughs and and a good time. Probably not as many chokes once we get to the club as jokes. There'll, yeah, there'll be more jokes than chokes. Hopefully. Hopefully. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> you guys are optimistic, and I like that. With Gary, there's no guarantee. I mean, you never know when he's going to take your back. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> so we definitely invite you to check out the BJJ Brick event, the summer camp, whatever you're calling it. And uh, the easiest way to do is go to the show notes, and there'll be a link to that. And we'd love to see you on the mats that weekend. Yep, June 22nd, 23rd, 24th, Wichita, Kansas. Thank you to our gracious host, Fox Fitness. And uh, definitely check out the BJJ Brick event, which I call the Uma Plata Palooza. I stole that from Joe. <laughs> oh, I want to give a shout-out. Uh, our friend Mindy is from Kansas City, uh, also a Patreon supporter. Uh, she just wanted to let all the ladies out there know that if you're planning on coming to the event, you won't be the only female. There'll be uh, a handful of ladies on the mat, so uh, you won't be alone uh, as the only female. So just heads up on that. Uh, Mindy wants everybody to know about that. So glad she's glad to see her there. This event, um, 
it, it, pretty good chance it will sell out. Will um, sell out. Yeah, it's. I think we would have enough people like locally and almost more than enough just at Fox Fitness that that are interested. So um, get your. You can get online, get your tickets, especially if you're traveling. Uh, I'd recommend that to get them in advance. That way, you don't drive all the way here and and end up not being able to participate. That would be that'd be pretty sad. We want you guys to be happy. Yep. And Byron's saving those DVDs for people who come in from out of town. So are you coming in from out of town? Uh, you'll get a special guest of a DVD as long as, you know, we don't have more people than DVDs. Well, I, that, that's kind of the original plan. Uh, people are signing up from out of town that aren't like emailing me. <laughs> so um, I actually, I've already given, uh, wrote Mindy's name on one cause she's a Patreon supporter and she's coming from out of town. And I don't know if I can keep track of everybody who's out of town and who's not. So I think we'll just kind of do a random drawing. I don't know for sure how we'll do that, but um, I I don't know. People people are signed up from out of town, but most of them aren't sending me a heads up. So uh, it might it, you could still win if you're local, I guess. We'll probably just pass out numbers and draw them out of a hat. I don't know. I'll have Jake figure that out probably because <laughs> that's out of my element. Because he's a smart one out of the group. Yeah, and the better yeah, looking. Sir- Certainly, if you're a listener and you come from out of town to the event and you haven't told us beforehand, make sure to introduce yourself and tell us where you're from. Yeah, that, that, it it happens uh, occasionally. Somebody will come in, they'll spend the whole day uh, training, the whole day, the whole class training, and then we'll be kind of picking up stuff and, and they'll mention, hey, I, have, I like your podcast. I'm like, why didn't you tell me when I walked in the door or when, uh, you know, when, when I introduced myself or whatever? And I'd, it's kind of uh, – I'd make sure to get extra role with that person or maybe team up with him during the technique portion. But uh, otherwise, I'm just saying, oh, nice to meet you. Thanks for saying that and bye. <laughs> Tell us earlier on. It makes it easier. Check us out on our social media outlets, Facebook, YouTube. We even have an app. It's called BJJ Brick. It's easy way to listen to the podcast, guys. Next week, we have David Karchper. He is the grappling referee. Uh, we've had him on before, and he just – he does a great job of explaining the uh, side of, of what a referee is doing and why sometimes it's different than other referees. And and we actually get into a pretty interesting discussion about uh, the border of the mats, which doesn't – it sounds like, oh, how big of a discussion is that going to be? Actually, it's really confusing. <laughs> like when to reset, how to, how to do it. You know, what if Gary's got me in a triangle and we end up basically on the other mat? What's happening on the other mat if there's big, you know, heavyweights working for takedowns and we're over there – you know, half off the mat, but still on the mat according to the rules, what to do. I don't know. I was fascinated by this whole thing. And, and of course, we talk about other things other than just the borders. But the but that discussion, I hadn't thought of that being that complicated. But, wow, uh, there's a lot to managing a border in jiu-jitsu. And, you know, what I really like is after he was on last time, I went to his Facebook page and, and liked that page. And what I really like is he posts – you know, sequences of, you know, little portions of matches and ask how you would score it. And, uh, you know, he'll explain how he would have scored it and why. I just think it's cool, you know, listening to everybody, you know, with their, you know, ideas and then David coming up with how he would have scored it. So uh, it's very uh, uh, educating just uh, checking out his Facebook page. Yeah, and that's I'm with you, Gary. I, I've liked his page and I recommend you all do the same. And he's just he makes you think. And that's nice. Sometimes it gives Gary a headache. Well, I just went and liked his page now. (laughs) (laughs) See, I just got him another follower. Well, 
that that was actually a, a good sales pitch, Gary. I thought, man, that that actually sounds really valuable. So it's pretty yeah, fun, it, you know. And the reason, I guess, Byron, I think you, uh, uh, I saw you on Facebook talking back and forth to him on his page. I'll and, comment on so those I things. Checked, yeah, yeah. So I checked the page out, and I was like, man, this is this is awesome. And you know, I know he put something up there yesterday, and I, I was watching it and uh, and checking it out. So uh, He'll be like, I, I really like his page. It's it's a unique page. It's uh, like nothing I've seen. Yeah, he'll show like a, a, a thirty second clip and like how many points does the guy earn? And like, okay, this sounds easy. Actually, I have no. It was at three points. Or was it seven? Yeah. Uh, did he give up an advantage? Like, yeah, yeah things get confusing sometimes. And, and, and it, yeah, it's crazy because nobody comes up with the same answer. It's, uh, you know, it just shows you how tough, you know, it is to be a referee. It'll be next week, my friend. Stay sweaty. And don't forget to shower. Train hard, train smart, get better. We'll see you on the mats, guys. Thank you for listening. I hope you find the time today to roll. After all, the best way to get better at Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is to do Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. <laughs>